Yes, I seek my source for some definitive. Closer I am to find. The Combing the Stacks podcast, your go-to podcast for six decades of music, three albums at a time. Each decade, we cover over 200 albums spanning all musical genres and tastes, from the well-known acts to the cult favorites. Your tour guides on this journey are John, Josh, and Matt, three amateur music podcasters who all share a love of music and a shared quest to hear the next great album. And now, we head into the Stacks. The evening of June 8th, 2023, and you're listening to the Combing the Stacks Music Podcast. Uh, as a reminder, you can listen to us on Spotify for Podcasters, our home platform, by searching uh, uh, Combing the Stacks Music Podcast. I apologize, I'm so used to saying anchor.fm, but there is no anchor anymore. Uh, you can also search YouTube, Combing the Stacks Music Podcast. Check out Josh's Letterboxd. Uh, by searching Combing the Stacks Music Podcast, all kinds of different places that you can get your CTS uh, content. We're a regular episode tonight covering three albums. Uh, let's go ahead and introduce the albums, guys. Um, Josh, why don't you go ahead and let the listeners know what we might be listening to tonight? Yep, so we are covering, starting off with Indigo Girls, self-titled album Indigo Girls, followed by Madonna's Like a Prayer and ending with Galaxy 500 on fire, all from 1989. Got it. And uh, as well, we will continue our journey through Buzz Clips. So we'll be doing a couple of them tonight. I believe we're doing a song by The Alarm and we'll we'll be doing a song by Sushi and the Banshees, which uh, we've covered now, but there's Juju way back the beginning of this decade. Uh, Matt, do we have any history to check tonight? We got some history. I can I can run through. Okay, why don't we go ahead and, and hear what's going on? Such is a history of where someone has been killed. All right, so uh, so June eighth, uh, fifty four years ago, nineteen sixty nine, Mick Jagger, Keith Richards, and Charlie Watts visited, visited Brian Jones at his home. Uh, to discuss the future, uh, his future in the group, and they later issued a press statement saying that he was leaving, um, which basically meant that they were firing him. Brian Jones got kicked out of the Rolling Stones 54 years ago today, the band that he helped to start. Because um, of his drug use, right? Because of his drug use, um, yeah, and he was just not, they weren't really getting along, because I think he was kind of 
John, you probably know about that. He was like cheesed off. I think that like Mick and Keith were kind of getting to be the main songwriters and buddy buddy, and he was kind of being the third wheel. It was all the things. Yeah, drugs, <laughs> conflicts. Things. Mental Keith Richards health. was sleeping with his ex girlfriend. Correct. Jesus. Right. Yep. Mm-hmm. So um, they, they've really set the template for all rock and roll <laughs> groups. And he died forward. very shortly afterwards. By the way, I yeah, think within a year, maybe a little over a year. Yeah. Uh, 53 years ago in 1970, Deep Purple had their van and equipment uh, impounded by East German police while on a European tour after mistakenly driving too close to the border. Um, so I had to read that a couple, like twice, two or three times to think like, what was the issue? There? I'm like, oh yeah, East Germany, like the, 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 the whole Cold <laughs> yeah. War thing. So it's like, right. So mm-hmm. I guess, um, I don't know why they were driving so close to the border, but um, that was isn't, a big no-no back then. Isn't the border a wall? How <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Get away from the wall. Uh, uh, 49 years ago today, uh, years ago today, a couple things happened. Dolly Parton hit number one in the U.S. country charts with I Will Always Love You. Uh, Elvis Presley indicated that he wanted to cover the song, but, um, and, and you know, Parton, she, she, Dolly Parton was interested in allowing him to do this until Colonel Tom Parker, Elvis's manager, told her that uh, it was standard procedure for Elvis uh, or for for the songwriter uh, for for a song that Elvis was going to do to sign over half of the publishing rights to uh, to, to Elvis and she refused to do that. This is not having that. But then later on, she did have Whitney Houston cover it, which was a smashing success. We talked a little yeah, bit really. about that um, a bunch of episodes ago um, when we covered Whitney Houston. Yeah, really, one of her most famous songs, Whitney Houston. I would I would say probably her biggest. I would say. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I'd have to look that up. Uh, 40, 49 years ago, also 49 years ago in 74, Bill Wyman, another Rolling Stone, was the first Rolling Stone to release a solo album um, with the album called Monkey Grip. I never heard of that album before. I don't, I can't, I can't say if it's any good or not, but I guess Rolling Stones were still, members were still doing, uh, were started to do solo albums out uh, in 1974. Um uh, 36 years ago, a gentleman by the name of Yogi Horton, who was a session drummer with Luther, Luther Vandross, sadly took his own life, um, having told his wife that he was tired of living in the shadow of the R&B singer. Um, he also worked with artists like the B-52s and Diana Ross and also Debbie Harry. So um, I don't know the story behind that, but still sad nonetheless. Um, uh, 34 years ago. 1989 at a Greenpeace Rainbow Warriors press conference, whatever that is, green, an offshoot of Greenpeace. Mm-hmm. Uh, Chrissy Hind, who apparently was is, is, maybe was or still is probably a vegetarian, claimed that she once firebombed a McDonald's restaurant. And then the following day, a McDonald's in Milton Keynes, England, was firebombed and Hind was threatened with legal action. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, George Michael, 16 years ago, was sentenced in 2007, was sentenced to 100 hours of community service and banned from driving for two years uh, after, after he was arrested the previous October for being found slumped at the steering wheel of his car. Uh, he pleaded guilty to driving while unfit. <laughs> I like that term. Uh, blaming tiredness and prescription drugs for the offense. Um, and then finally, 15 years ago in 2008, Rolling Stone magazine published a list of their top 50 guitar songs of all time. Uh, the top five included uh, number five, Brown Sugar by the Rolling Stones. Number four, You Really Got Me. The Kinks at number three, uh, with the Kinks at number three, um, I'm sorry, at number four. Number three was Cream with Crossroads. 
Number two was Jimi Hendrix's Purple Haze. And number one? Uh, I don't know, Beatles song? No, no. Oh. <laughs> uh, Johnny Be Good by Chuck okay. Berry. So, a uh, couple birthdays today. Turning 83 years old. I know we didn't cover her, but I think we might have talked about her, though, but Nancy Sinatra turns 83 today, hmm. um, which yeah, I was kind of, yeah. We did not cover her. Uh, I think we talked about her once or twice, but yeah. um, turning 82, born in 1941, American musician Fuzzy Haskins, who I did not recognize the name, but he was a founding member of, of um, the funk bands Parliament and Funkadelic, so he was in both of those bands. Um, and then uh, born in 1962, turning 61 years old today, Nick Rhodes from Duran Duran. And we definitely haven't covered this guy yet, but what the hell? Kanye West turns 46 today, so happy birthday, Kanye. <laughs> Great. So there you go. Coming up in the 2000s. <laughs> and I think yesterday was Prince's birthday, if I'm not mistaken. I did see something about that. Mm. Prince doesn't have any more birthdays, Matt. So <laughs> it would have been his birthday. That's true. Mm. That's true. He was yes, gotcha. he was born that day. He was born on that day, correct? So happy birthday, everybody! Happy birthday as well, Josh. What's our special segment this week? We have an essential question. Is that the question? haven't discussed so josh you threw out about five of them at us i did i did we can go we can go on one i of did those. meticulous notes for all five so i'll be ready to go <laughs> oh, i took gosh. no notes so i'm just gonna riff josh well i was i was tr i was getting excited about us being on the verge of the 90s so that's yeah. kind of where some of those ideas came from and and also Were you full I, half chub <laughs> yes exactly. yeah. okay half chub for the 90s <laughs> yeah not I won't be fully too messin' until we get to the actual shows. So, Violator um, <laughs> by Depeche Mode. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess the essential question is what albums, artists, or genres are you most looking forward to covering, discovering, rediscovering when we get in the 90s? Maybe just a couple or five for each person. Are there any that jump? I know we, you know, John's done a really good job of creating the shows already and and we're always incorporating new uh new lists and new ideas for songs to get more songs in as well as albums so what did you guys have anything that comes to mind when uh when looking at the spreadsheet or uh, thinking about the 90s you can start matt so i i i'm excited to learn more get you know uh, get more info info on a lot of 90s hip-hop and R&B. Mm -hmm. um, I know some of the stuff, like I know Dre, I know The Chronic, I know Doggy Style, I know Wu-Tang, but there's plenty of other stuff I don't know, like Missy Elliott. And, How well uh, do you know Doggy Style, Matt? <laughs> I know it very well. Okay. It was one of the uh, it was one of the albums I bought when uh, the BMG or the Columbia House, uh, you know, uh, oh, yeah, your famous marathon of, of hip-hop albums. Yep. <laughs> yep. So you would that say was... you're intimately, intimately, <laughs> intimately familiar Doggy with Doggy Style. Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. So, uh, but I think there's a bunch of other stuff that I'm fair, not very familiar with. So, uh, I'm interested in, in learning more about that. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm certainly interested in, in, in a lot of the alternative rock and grunge stuff. Uh, cause that's kind of what I grew up on in my, in the nineties, uh, you know, Pearl Jam. Uh, I know they're not grunge, but also Radiohead's my favorite band. So I'm excited. I, we only do like two Radiohead albums in the nineties. 
How many they, did... they have more albums in the 2000s that we'll probably... They only had three, talking about right? Them. So... <laughs> they only had three. We're covering two of them. You yeah, wanna, you want to do all of them? <laughs> all of them, but it's okay. We don't have to do Pablo, honey. So, I'm excited about that. Um, yeah, this is kind of off the top of my head. I think uh, that's yeah. What about well, you, John? I'm interested in revisiting albums that I famously have hated mm. in the '90s to see if I continue to hate them or <laughs> if they win me over. I also am. I will enjoy thoroughly some band discussions amongst the three of us of bands that we famously love, hate, some love and some hate historically. I think mm -hmm. there will be some very passionate um, descriptions. Um, obviously, we're getting we already have started to get into stuff that was contemporary for me as well. So there will be more being able to process it in the context of now and when I first listened to it as opposed to when you're listening to something from 1975 it's yeah. you first listen to it but you first listen to it on the radio not real time so there will be a little bit more context with that um and i'll also be will be interested to listen to stuff i've known forever and ever in the context of this show and see if it connects to stuff we've covered on the show so i think it's less genres of music um i i've always thought that the 90s is going to be an interesting test for me of electronic music because I know we're going to be covering a lot of it in the nineties because it was big in the nineties and it was really the one genre that I was not engaged with, shall we say in the nineties. Mm. So, yeah, you know, bands John, are like, there any... oh, go ahead. bands like Aphex Twin and Massive Attack yeah. and Tricky and stuff. I mean, these were not things I was listening to in the nineties. So I know them as being on lists of, the top albums, but they were the ones that I'd be like, oh yeah, that's dance music. And I'd just sort of move on from it. So now, now I'll be listening to all those albums and I don't know if I'm going to like them or not. I may, and just be like, why didn't I listen to them? Or I may go. So that's going to be an interesting ride for me because it will all be new. John, what are some examples of albums or bands that you've traditionally not liked that we're going to cover? I don't want to waste that for the, the <laughs> I want to oh, save nice. that for the show episodes, but okay. I mean, you don't need to share, Matt, but you and I have argued about several bands in the 90s that you love. And One I comes to mind uh, right off the top couple. of my head. Yeah, a couple come to mind for me. Right off. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right on. What about you, Josh? Mm -hmm. There's a lot of, um, I feel like a lot of British bands that I only know by name and never listen to. Um, something like Portishead is a band that I've always known by name. Um, Massive Attack is another one that that's come up a lot that I don't know anything about. Or something like um, well, they're both trip hop. Trip hop, so yeah. that's yeah. a whole genre. So maybe it's yep. the whole genre of trip hop. Just trip hop, <laughs> yeah. And then um, stuff like um, uh, like. Like the Stone Roses, do we cover them? They're another. That's British in a couple band. weeks. We cover oh. them in the eighties. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> then I'm doing really bad. Um, <laughs> uh, but like Pavement, Pavement's another big band. They're American, obviously, but um, I don't really know them. Um, mm. Only by kind of reputation and their kind of love hate. And then also, I keep hearing another. I'm following the the nineties uh, bracket on Twitter. The like oh, best right. album. So there's a lot of albums that are on there that we are going to cover, but things like sure. There's a lot of like cult favorite, like yes. guided by voices. It's, that is exactly yeah. the band yeah. that I was going to say. There's so, bands like that, that that's whole fan base is deeply, deeply online yep. in an area where I'd argue that like, if you were to look at it online, you'd think like, 
why were they not big? And then you realize that really only like 100,000 people bought it, but they're all online. Yeah. Like Guided by Voices comes to mind for me. Bell and Sebastian comes to mind. There's there's a lot of them. You know, what I mean? I, I'd even argue another band you mentioned there, Pavement, has a particularly deeply online um, neutral Melk Hotel. Yeah, um, I've listened to them, so I know them. Yeah. But I'm just but, trying to think of bands that like, if you were to listen to people online, you'd think that they sold like 2.5 million copies and you realize... Like the Velvets, right? They've yeah. really only sold like a hundred thousand. So yeah, it, it certainly seems like a certain like college age person that was like really into those bands were the ones that are their ride or die for them. And then I think the other big one actually, and that's coming up also in the eighties, <laughs> but uh, you know, kind of more popular in the nineties is Nine Inch Nails. I don't know them too much. Um, okay. I've heard their kind of big singles. You're gonna but, get them next week, Josh. Yeah. So I'm interested to see the original. I know Trent Reznor obviously from from a lot of his like film work and scores and and even like you know uh, I don't know, David Lynch and Twin Peaks and stuff like that. He was in the new revival. So um, so I'll be interested to see like how I guess aggressive and, and abrasive it is, or if it's really kind of like I, because that's another band that people really like certain people you know kind of have a big fan base so i'm interested in kind of that i guess tool too, kind of that whole industrial scene that we've been kind of leading up to through other bands so yeah there's a there's a lot that's going to be um there i i'm looking forward to when we cover the downward spiral because i have a funny josh story about the downward spiral so we well, have a story for me or not but no i don't know it's it, you're in the story you're oh. part of the story so <laughs> okay. we'll, no, we'll teaser there we're, wow we'll get to that in like probably a year but yeah. there you go we'll <laughs> okay. let that appetite for now I'll be a year <laughs> right around the corner I am, I am. was that 94 was that downward spiral is 94 94, right? 94 yeah, so. yep i am interested for matt to get exposed to some really great hip-hop that's in in, mm-hmm. uh, in the 90s also so yeah, i think i, I it's not hip-hop deeply... but i think john john wants me to cover d'angelo i think is what <laughs> <Yeah>. you want <laughs> i don't want you to we the, the premise of the thing is that we cover the top 100 albums on best ever albums and that no but when we co- i mean when we do the bios when we split that i know yes but when we cover that one you're like i want matt to, or oh, the dmx i like I'm matt pro- to do any i'm any probably gonna R&B. do the dmx bios. any r and any yeah. 90s r&b i feel like matt you I think the hip hop you're going to know more than you think you do. I think '90s yeah. R&B is going to be something that's, that's going to be like another country for you. Whereas for me, it's going yeah. to be like seminal, <laughs> seminal. Basically, '90s R&B was like your hair metal for mm. me in the night. Yeah, so, um, and that's why I like the idea of the Pitchfork top 200 singles. I was actually pleasantly surprised by how diverse it was, and also how not wink you know winky naughty it was it was actually like some stuff that isn't highbrow it was a lot of stuff that was just really entertaining stuff so um, so it's not like necessarily one hit wonders and things like, like the that. 80s one is like at least a hundred of the songs are like deeply underground songs that never charted right whereas the 90s one there's some of them don't get me wrong and they're great singles but they're in much smaller you know, they had like Master P make them say, uh, you know, that, that's not going to be anywhere near the 80s, right? You know, right, right. I'm not, and, and I hate that song, but I'm just saying that's a good example. Like, there's not a critic ever who said, boy, you know, you know what a really good hip hop song, of the, but they sort of took it from the thing of like 200 songs you need to know to kind of understand the 90s. So, all right. Yeah. Well, I, I need to check out that list then. Mm-hmm. Cool. So, I've, I have some ideas of how we might be able to integrate it. 
because I think when I looked at it, there were only 67 of the 200 songs that were not on albums that we're covering. So oh, okay, it's theoretically attainable, you yeah. know, for us to do it over the course of it. So we could talk about what that would plus, look like. Plus so. the buzz bin. So plus there'll be the a lot more sing- yep. singles in the 90s. Life goals. Yeah. Life goals. So now, speaking of life goals, us doing the buzz bin. <laughs> so. Enter into the buzz. buzz. Um, we've got two of them this week. Interestingly enough, two of us, Josh and Matt, said they were familiar with Peekaboo by Susie and the Banshees, and I said not so much. And then one of us, me, said that I was familiar with Rain in the Summertime by The Alarm, and the other two did not know it. So we have an interesting frame of reference there uh, for those that have may not have listened before with the buzzbin we talk about familiarity with the group and the single we talk about how we feel about it and then we decide whether or not it would be in our own buzzbin and uh, we're getting to the point where we've covered enough buzzbin songs now that we can't recap what has and has not gone in the buzzbin mm. so we will eventually be making a playlist i think of those albums or those songs that have made all of our our bin the no, bin good. the cts bin i think there's only, bin. there's only a couple that are on all three right now, right? I mean, we've only covered like right. It's probably songs. still a small enough list that we can we can mention what those songs. Were. Like, I I think it was three total songs, right? That that all of us have put in in the bin together. Let's see if you guys can remember. Veronica by Elvis Costello. Veronica by Elvis yeah. Costello made it for all three of us, correct? Uh, can you remember the others? Did Chains of Love? Did that make it? Chains of Love. Uh, did I think not I kept that it. out of mine. Yeah, Matt I put, did not I put, put I put True Faith in mine. Okay. Yep. And eardrum true buzz. Faith, I think got us. Eardrum buzz us. made it for all all three of us, and True Faith made it for all of us. Yeah. Okay. Not so, what I am. Yeah. One of us. Josh, you didn't like that one. I think Josh no, did not put it in his not. buzz bin. No. And the Smithereens were not a a big hit with yeah. all of us. That's particular Smithereens song. Yeah. Okay. So, well, let's start with Rain in the Summertime, since you guys weren't as familiar with that, by The Alarm. Uh, Matt, I think we established already that you guys were not familiar with either the band or yeah, the song. Nothing. So what what were your thoughts on this one? Well, I, this is a good example of why, because for this week, I to, to listen to these songs for the first time, and really only time, I literally once or twice, I, I watched the videos, which was yeah. an excellent move, I thought, <laughs> yeah. um, especially for this song, because, man... I had no idea who these guys were. There was some great '80s mullet hair in this video. <laughs> I have to say, it's very impressive. I was, I was, I was almost distracted by the uh, the hair that I couldn't focus as much on the music. But this is kind of like a. Um, what was my take on the song? Um, it's 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 a little. It's kind of a little. Um, it's a little '80s generic, but I also really I liked it. It's kind of like this anthemic kind of like very crisp production. Um, you know, the video is pretty funny cause they're got, they're like in the, in a desert somewhere behind some like abandoned building or dilapidated building. And then, and then at the end it's raining on them and stuff. So they're like, they're, they're, they're there's living. a lot of like hair blowing back guys. Like, <laughs> like a wind machine. It's well, they're in yeah. like a Matt, I, I don't want to steal your thunder, but they're in like a, like, it looks like a middle Eastern sort of like, right area you know what it is kind of? it's the cover of the diesel and dust the midnight oil album it's like yes. in front of that building are they australian <laughs> yes well it could, no they they're Austra- english i, I think i don't they're think english. they are yeah. they're welsh I, oh, okay. they're well they're okay yeah so yeah it's just it's a very interesting it could also theoretically be like new mexico <laughs> so i can't quite yeah. tell where they're at yeah yeah they are welsh i just looked that up but the song is kind of like it's it's kind of got this very calming um 
it's kind of like a little bit of a galloping kind of baseline a little bit, but it's just, it's, and it's got a very like, yeah, very 80 sheen kind of guitar, not like synth heavy, not that type of 80s sheen, but kind of this anthemic song that's, that's catchy. It's, it's nice, right? It's not amazing, but it was certainly, it was a, a pleasant to listen to. Yeah. Um, you know, I would, so yeah. So I think I generally liked it. I don't know what the hell they, they were, th- they were singing about, uh, you know, uh, you know, Rain, rain in, in the, the summertime, <laughs> you know. So maybe I don't know. I didn't pay attention to the lyrics, but uh, but I enjoyed the song. I thought it was good. I, I and yeah, like John said, I wasn't familiar with the band, and I was kind of nonplussed by this song. Yeah, I really thought it was like a U two ripoff in a lot of ways, and I couldn't get it. Definitely over that. was U two light. For yeah, sure. um, mm. and that's just what it kept coming back to in my head, and. Um, it, it's a pleasant enough song, but it it wasn't uh, buzzworthy for me. I, I'm not putting it in my buzz bin, and it just it also wasn't catchy enough for me to like rise to that kind of like infectious uh, want to listen to on repeat type of song. Um, I think my criteria for the buzz bin is going to be pretty harsh overall. I'm going to really try and like make it essential albums. Does it so does I, it need I, to be? edgier josh because this is not this isn't really an edgy type you know if you think of buzz i don't know i think of a little bit of an edge for some reason i mean true i wouldn't say true faith is very edgy if we're using a previous song that okay but i think it does have to be well a like our like our criteria do i want to hear the rest of the album like it's uh, got to be yeah. a strong enough song to make me seek seek out the rest of the the album so so those are we, we've usually done those in two separate questions but it's kind right, of the same right. for you yeah. but yeah i think just in terms of like my my grading of these i think they're gonna have to be pretty excellent uh okay. in my mind or to to make it to that so what well, about if, you john, john? If, I guess, I, before john goes before, oh, I, I will yeah. say like if we're going by that criteria like even though i like the song this doesn't make me want to seek out the rest of the album it's like a, yeah it's like i that's i'm so I'm, well we kind of established that as one on. of the yeah. big things it's, it's the buzz <laughs> okay. is supposed to drive you to the yeah the album, okay right? then i yeah. then i will not put it but i but i also didn't hate the song <laughs> like i was kind of like oh it's nice you know so i was kind of trying to be like positive, if, it, but... if it was a cheese tray, would it make you want to like go to the restaurant or well, buy that cheese? Well, like... it's kind of like that's why we analyze it. We <laughs> right. like it. But then the last question becomes like, would you put yeah, it in your okay. buzz bin? And it's not like, essential. Mm. Yeah, it would not be buzz. OK, so it's not going in my buzz bin. So, yeah, it's like it's, it's kind of like a. I mean, there could be 80s. a trash bin as well that you could throw. Like there could be a something that doesn't go in the buzz bin, but also not in the trash bin. So I just I just this will go in the Luke, the regular bin. Like, yeah, I don't know if there's the, anything I would have thrown in the trash bin. There's, no, I didn't love no. that Smithereen song, but there's nothing that ha- I've been like, oh, yeah. this song did nothing for me at the all. The none plus bin, as Josh, as Josh said. Yeah. So, I, I, what'd you think, John? Uh, yeah. How did yeah. you know about this band anyway? Uh, this I just remember the song oh, being okay. on the radio at different times. I have always thought this song. I, I have a kind of a similar view to you, Josh. I always felt this song was like you too light. Mm-hmm. Um, it, the, it's got a little bit of the ringing edge style guitar, the space the lyrics that are romantic but broad in the same way that they're about everything and nothing at the same time which is to me a very u2 factor it it was not about god or a mother so it was a little (laughs) different than u2 that way but um i i thought it did have a good chorus i think that's the best part of the song um the instrumentation was fine as well but but much like you josh there's just nothing that pushes me into the I want to hear that again. It kind of yeah. 
washes over me and goes, that was pleasant. And then yep. you, you don't really want to I didn't really want to sing along with it. I didn't really want to. It didn't really make me explore their catalog either, which Josh, like you, I I have like criteria. I, I don't know if I'm going to be quite as harsh as you, but I like my criteria is it either has to be a bop, <laughs> as yep. they say, or it's got to be a song that intrigues me. It's like, let me know more. Like the Elvis Costello song, Veronica, I know it's a bop, right? As they yeah. would say. And that, because of that, I'm like, hmm, I wonder if there's other songs that are like that. And then... Um, something like what i am if i had listened to that in 1988 by Edie burkell i would have been curious to hear what the rest of the album sounded like i don't know if i would have liked it but it, i would have explored it right so it, yeah. it met the criteria for me on that front um this one i don't know if it did either and so that's why it kind of left me a little bit flat there's also if you look at the video for the alarm because i've taken after matt now and now i'm watching the videos on all of these that's going to yeah. be a hallmark for me of everything we do in singles going yeah, forward. Yeah, it's definitely recommended. Yeah, yeah, I'm just gonna do it for now on. Like any single that we cover, whether it be the Buzz Bin or if we decide to do any of those Pitchfork songs, I'm gonna like watch the videos. And the video just is—it's very generic to me. It just—it did. There's nothing about this band that made me want to see them live as well. So mm -hmm. I think that is in the context of the Buzz Bin. Is it buzzworthy? don't know i think i would have rather listened to the joshua tree <laughs> yeah i think and i would have been good for this style of music so um i don't mean to minimize it just it didn't move me in that way isn't it crazy though for the record we could just look up any of these songs and watch the videos <laughs> well like, we couldn't have like done a... this podcast like 15 <laughs> years ago it would have been impossible to do we would have had to like buy all of these well right. no we could have made we would have to steal all the music right, right? like from Napster. torrents and had every virus on earth and probably <laughs> yeah so but now it's, but the video part would have been impossible yeah, yeah and then like youtube an, was dropped in what 2005 and became semi-popular in 2006 and now we could do all this stuff so yep crazy mm -hmm. that's a so good point, matt's not in your buzzbin either right no that no i would not it's yeah. like i said i was like oh it's fine you know but like that's the that's not a ringing endorsement of it either so yeah um we haven't yeah. covered too many welsh bands if we're covering all the U United I guess Kingdom. we haven't. <laughs> I don't remember any other ones. Um, yeah. There's definitely been some hot summer homes that bands have stayed in when recording <laughs> music or whatever. That's, that's the Welsh <laughs> yeah. uh, contribution is summer homes? <laughs> yeah, I think, uh, I don't know, Led Zeppelin or something had a summer a know, Welsh house summer there home? or castle mm. or whatever for the acoustics. Um, Acoustic, yeah. So... <laughs> Well, uh, well let, let's talk Susie and the Banshees Peekaboo now, yeah. um, a song I was not familiar with, but let, let's have you guys start. Um, Josh, we'll let you start this time. Yeah, I, I heard this song somewhere along the way. It sounded very familiar. and this... I do remember, though, once Matt sent that Beavis and Butthead clip, <laughs> I did remember them yeah. talking about it, so I just never put two and two together, yeah. Yeah, that was very entertaining. I'm glad I listened to the song, you know, before seeing that clip, because um, that was that was funny. But this is an example of a song that gets in your head and that I, I was really into. And it was the combination of kind of the the accordion and the horns that were kind of unusual instruments for songs like this. Also, kind of the cadence of the song, the fact that it's like it's got this marching beat, but she like, dr she drags out like saying, um, 
certain words um, or kind of lengthens certain words in the chorus and stuff. And so it's got this really kind of unusual infectious quality to it when I listen to it. And I like the fact, well, I like, I don't know if I like it, but I, I found it funny that they incorporated the Jeepers Creepers old, old timey, like 30 song into the lyrics, um, which was really funny. You guys have heard that before Jeepers Creepers. Where'd you get those peepers like that? <laughs> Maybe. Okay. Yeah. Well that's, that's in there. And she, she kind of like spins some of the lyrics um, uh, to that and, and makes them her own. And I also liked um, some of the dialogue too. She says at one point, like flaccid ego in your hand, which I thought was a clever, um, you know, jab at somebody. And I'm glad to see, you know, they've been around for so long, this band. And, you know, we covered them, what, in 1980, maybe in the late 70s. I mean, they've been around since the 70s. And now they're back in 89 with this song. So, um, yeah, I'm definitely curious about the rest of this album and kind of them as a whole. Because I remember really liking Juju and them doing, they're another one of those kind of like punk, post-punk bands. Um, And this was a, this was a big, this is going in my buzz bin. That's what I'm trying to say. Nice. Matt, how about you? Yeah, so I, I definitely remember this from Beavis and Butthead. Um, <laughs> and uh, that's, yeah, I don't, I don't even think I saw the video in and of itself. I just remember watching, you know, and, and, and I remember the song because it's not like I watched that episode of Beavis and Butthead over and over again. It's just that this song is just, you need to listen to it just once, and that chorus just sticks in your head. Yeah. Um, this is a real, it's a very unique song. It's not just the accordion that Josh was talking about and the, the marching drum, but there's like, there's a really interesting effect that I don't, I don't know how to, it's hard to describe. It's, it, it, and I don't know exactly what they're, it's almost like a flanging kind of thing. It's kind of like weaving in and out and it's clearly mm-hmm. some manipulation happening within the studio. So that makes it interesting. But yeah, this is just reminds me of those quirky. You, you want know, to know not, what it is, Matt? Because I what, looked it up. Oh, okay. Yes. They selected different parts so the song was built on a loop of a brass part with drums which had been used in a john kale song the year before the band then played the tape backwards edited it and re-recorded on top of it adding a different melody plus an accordion a one-note bass and a jarring guitar Mm -hmm. drummer if you remember Susie and the banshee's drummer one of my all-time favorite drummer names budgie Budgie, Uh, i believe wasn't he also in the slits was that where budgie was in as well if i remember correctly um, he was like the one male yes. slit. Yeah, yes. he was a slit. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, he also added another beat over top of it, and then once that was all, that mishmash was done, then Sushi sang over top of it. Okay. Yes. Yeah, so that all that is it, it creates an interesting sound. Yeah, it's kind of like um, that, that backward sounding. Well, yeah, it is. Yes. Yeah. yeah, it's definitely yeah. backward sounding. So, uh, and she's just quirky, right? And this is definitely not, you know, uh, if I if you think about this juxtaposed against, you know, the the, the Juju album that we covered. And I mm-hmm. think that was, that was like 1980 or 81. It was in the eighties. Um, you know, this, this is kind of, this is more bizarre than probably any of the songs on that record. From what I recall, anyway, this seems mm-hmm. like it's, this is more of an avant-garde garde, artistic kind of song. It's not straight ahead. It's really unique. So yeah. How could this not make you curious about what else is on the record? And it's, it, I guess it could be off-putting to some people. Um, but I think that they're still, I think just with the, with the, the drumming and the um, kind of the cool sounds that's happening. It's, it's just, 
yeah, it's it's somewhat appealing. It's oddly appealing, right? So yeah. that's what, what you know. What better way to, you know, uh, find what 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 better song to have something like that to make you go, all right, I want to listen to more of this. So uh, so yeah, it's very very interesting. And she, her her voice as well, um, yeah. kind of like not not necessarily abrasive, but she's not kind of it's dramatic, right? It's and and when you watch the video, it's kind of theatrical as well. She's it's like a performance piece almost. So there's the video definitely adds a layer to it too. Yeah, there's like a lot of silhouettes and like I don't know weird camera angles like from above and and uh... guys in like uh, eyes wide shut masks and stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Dance, some like dance, some like weird like robotic t- type of dancing. Yeah, uh, jerky dancing. It's it's music for people who don't have friends. If, if butthead is, is, is correct, so. <laughs> I um this one falls in the I admire the ambition, but it isn't for me category. I have mm-hmm. to say, I, this is not going to go in my personal buzz bin. Um, you know, it's funny. I I kept trying to figure out what this song reminded me of, and you know what I ultimately decided, even though this is a more sophisticated version of it is Hollaback Girl by Gwen (laughs) Stefani is what this song reminded me of. Like sort of built around a marching band beat a little bit and sort of playful and childlike, right? But also uh, hostile in the lyrics a little bit. It's kind of lyrically a little bit similar to that song as well. If you look at what the songs are about, it's... and. I just, as I heard it, I was like, I think this is like the 1989, 88 Hollaback Girl, you know, in its <laughs> own context. Um, a female fronted, right? And different stuff like that. It just, the more I listened to it, the more I was like, this occupies that same lane, in my opinion. A little um, bit more demented, though. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, probably. It still has Hollaback Girl's more of a pop. That's that's more of a ubiquitous kind of thing. I could see a lot more people turning this off than, than Hollaback Girl. That's a Pharrell or Neptune's beat too. I That's think. a Neptune's beat, yeah. yeah. And so it's With the kind of, yeah. yeah. And it's I don't know. It just it's the drum. The I, I don't know. I I kind of I just look at them as maybe this is a little bit more of an indie version of that, but mm-hmm. it's yeah. same general concept in my opinion. Yeah, um, I, I, I get. I, I admire see the similarities. I get what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah, I, I admire the the ambition here. And I would much rather a band not stick to their lane. And um, it's very funny. I, I, I'm going to kind of go on a slight tangent right here. I I sometimes will check out, like, a, a guilty pleasure of mine is checking, like, young people reactors react to, like, music I grew up with, right? Like, it's just, it's oh, you, yeah. know you're, you know you're being basically sold. But I especially appreciate the ones where they're not going all in. I watched one this week where they listened to, like, R.E.M., Right, and they they were doing mostly like early '90s REM. They started with like "Losing My Religion" and "Everybody Hurts," mm-hmm. and pretty much everybody who reacted is like, "That's not real R." Like REM is supposed to sound like this, right? And I love REM, right? But I love like all of REM. I love the fact that they they didn't just make college indie rock albums for their whole career you know they just went in different directions but there are those people that are like rem was only a good band from 1983 to 1986 when i liked them and it's like well what did you want rem to make the same album for 15 years yeah you know it's Mm kind of like and i think that's what i'm getting at here is that sushi and the banshees probably could have been in that post-punk lane but they clearly right are going in a different direction they're experimenting they're bringing in more pop elements and um 
drum, you know, art rock has always been there, but and I, the first album had some noise elements and gothic elements to it for sure. Yep. Juju when we did it. And so I guess that's a way of me saying that even though it didn't connect with me, I appreciate the fact that seven or eight mm-hmm. years after Juju, uh, it would be what eight, because I think Juju is 81. If I remember correctly that they, and, and, you know, Susie and the Bansies goes back to, they were one of those many people that like saw the the class, right? I felt right. like every or the Sex Pistols of the class, right? Like they saw them and then they were like, "I'm going to start a band." There were, you know, we covered up seemingly like thirty groups that had an origin story yeah. like that, and so, so if you go back there, this is basically going on a new decade, ten, twelve years that's going on. So I appreciate the ambition. It just for whatever reason just didn't totally hit for me. Uh, I didn't hate it. It just didn't hit for me in the way it sounds like it hit for you guys. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, their first album was 78, and we didn't cover them until 81. So Right. And they've had a whole lot of albums in the 80s, it looks like, that we didn't cover. Yeah, they pretty much steadily just kept releasing albums mm-hmm. um, throughout. So, um, But there's only so many albums we can cover. But yeah, it's I, yeah, it's, just I remember Beavis saying that. I, I, as much as I love Beavis Butthead, I don't know if I his reaction totally. I don't know if I thought of this as like music yeah. for people that don't have friends. I was like, that's a little bit weird. But um, they but, didn't have a whole lot of comments. It was no, like a didn't. weird one. They were like just there was probably about. Four I think Beavis picked his nose at minutes. one point, which always yeah. made me laugh. The things where Beavis picked his nose, or there was something that Butthead would do too, along uh, with Beavis. Yeah, his first reaction where he was like, "Uh, what is this?" <laughs> that was <laughs> so, funny. Yeah, that sometimes there's just space. So, but yeah. So unfortunately, neither of these clips go in my buzzbin no. this week. Well, that's, maybe that's a good thing. We have to have high standards for the buzzbin. Yeah, we do. It's universal it's high be like, standards. It's got to have the true chef's kiss that's right. in order to make it into our buzzbin. So, all right. So let's let me try this transition again, guys. <laughs> let's see if the Indigo Girls rise to the level of chef's kiss. Like that one better as there opposed to the, yeah, I think that one's a little bit better. Fun, so, and fun fact that, here real quick. I just, I saw that Budgie toured with the Indigo Girls. So let's bring it full circle here. Oh, wow. it all, who didn't Budgie play? Is Budgie like a, it's <laughs> got like a fringe, a fringe, uh, uh, CTS, like a, a slow grow CTS Hall of Famer, which one day we will Could have be. a CTS Hall of Fame. Yeah. So yeah, those, yeah Budgie. Those, those musicians that are, you know, just kind of always around and, and cross bands. They're the ones that are the, the, I, the true. I legends. should probably mention also at the beginning, I should have mentioned it, that Astrid Gilberto passed away. Yes, this week. I saw that. Mm-hmm. We didn't Who, cover I, her per se. We covered what her father, Xiao, um, but no husband. Gets in Gilberto. Oh, husband. Yeah. Oh, husband. Okay. Mm-hmm. Got it. But Although she became ex-husband in Gilberto. As yeah. in Getz and Gilbert. So, yes, she yeah. was mm. who sang on Girl in Ipanema. Oh. Girl okay. from Ipanema, excuse me. Yeah, she was I like the voice. that album. It was, I, 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 saw, I heard a bio about her. That was the first thing she ever recorded was mm. that song. And it became one of the most famous songs famous. in the yeah, whole right. world ever. I think yeah. they said it's, there by a lot of metrics, it's one of the top 10 most well-known songs in the world wow. of the 20th century. Yeah. Wow. So. I mean, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. You can play it pretty much anywhere in any context. Well, you figure it, it was all over, you know, um, South America, and then yeah. it broke huge in the United States, and it broke huge in England. Yeah. So, and then it got to Europe, right? And it had a Spanish language thing, so it got to Spain and Portugal. So, yeah, when you think of it that way, you're like, well, yeah, that's pretty much all the places that had popular music. So, yeah. Nice. All right. So, well, RIP. Yeah. Good, good, uh, good remembering to bring that up. Mm-hmm. The 
Indigo Girls self-titled album, uh, Indigo Girls. Mm-hmm. And it the opening montage you heard Closer to Fine, and now you're going to hear Tried to Be True. Where are the demons of your desires? Why does my love destroy you? I said I tried to be true. Whatever it's me for you now. I said I tried, tried to be true. Whatever it's me for you now. All right, Matt, what are the stats on Indigo Girls? Oh, sorry. Shoot. Oh, he's playing the Indigo Girls. Push the wrong button. <laughs> Shoot. All right, Josh. I got too many things going on my computer here. All right. Girls Indigo Girls at number 60 1980s on albums, number 54 in 1989, number 28 of the Indigo Girls albums. Not make Rolling Stones list, and they are ranked number 1,284 of overall artist rankings on best ever albums. Okay. Um, the Indigo Girls are two people, Amy Ray and Emily Salliers, and they are from Atlanta, Georgia, metro area. They met actually met in elementary school and started performing in high school together um, and then took the name Indigo Girls in college after they both went to separate colleges and then both uh, at different times decided to go come back to Atlanta and attended Emory University instead. So they reunited at Emory University and started performing under that name. They picked the name by going through the dictionary and looking for a word that uh, they liked. So that's what they came up with that. They released that a single. That happens a lot, right? We have like yeah. people going through dictionaries like Grateful Dead. Somebody else did it recently. Oh, I think um, one of the bands we just covered did that as well. Yeah, who was Oh, that? Uh, Oh, the Pixies. That was the Pixies. Yep. So. Yeah, good call. And um, the uh, they released a single uh, in 1985 called Crazy Game. And later that year, they had a six-song EP come out named uh, Indigo Girls also. In 1987, they self-produced and released their first album, Strange Fire. And this drew the attention of Russell Carter, who became their manager and is actually still their manager easily enough. Um, Epic Records then signed them in 1988 after the success of other female singer-songwriter acts that we've <laughs> that we've discussed, such as 10,000 Maniacs, Tracy Chapman, and Suzanne Vega. Um, this led to their major label release that we're talking about tonight, um, Indigo Girls, which is technically their second uh, full-length album. It released, it reached 22 on the Billboard album charts, um, the single Closer to Fine, which I'm sure uh, you guys were familiar with, reached 52 on the pop charts and 26 on the modern rock charts. They won the Grammy in 1990 for Best Contemporary Folk Recording, and they were nominated for Best New Artist, but lost to Millie Vanilli, uh, who later had to give back the award. <laughs> it went gold um, six months uh, after this album came out, and eventually it reached platinum. Now, you may have heard some familiar, vo- familiar voice on this album. Michael Stipe sang on the third track, Kid Fears, and other members of R.E.M. performed on the sixth track, Tried to Be True. Um, the Irish band Hot House Flowers contributed backing vocals on se- several tracks, including um, Closer to Fine. And interestingly, they don't uh, ordinary, 
ordinarily collaborate when writing songs together. They write separately, and then the two of them come together to work on arrangements. Um, we're not covering them anymore after this. This is one of their highest profile albums, I would say, although they continue to have success after this. So I'm going to give the rest of the bio also. Um, they uh, in the 90s, they reached platinum on their second album, Nomads, Indian Saints, and on their fourth album, Sweet Swamp Ophelia. They were a contributing act to Lilith Fair in the late 90s. Um, and that is, I think, a big, um, you know, driver of their success and kind of opened them up to a larger audience. Uh, and, and on their 1997 album, Shaming of the Sun, it debuted at number seven on the Billboard charts, driven in large part by their appearance at Lilith Fair. Um, their track, Shame on You, from that album, received more airplay on Top 40 Radio and alternate rock radio than any of their other singles up to that point or to date. Um, they continued to release albums um, and tour uh, all through the 90s and 2000s. Um, in 2017, they toured with the Symphony Orchestra and released a double album called Indigo Girls Live with the University of Colorado Symphony Orchestra. I did not know the University of Colorado had a symphony orchestra, but now I do. Their latest release is the 2020 album Look Long, um, which I actually listened to. As I mentioned last week, I will be seeing them in a few weeks with uh, Neko Case, my wife's favorite band. Uh, Neko Case is my wife's favorite artist, not Indigo Girls, but she also likes Indigo Girls. And so we're seeing them, and it's a pretty good album. It's uh, It still has this folk rock stylings that this album kind of uh, has, has, along with some kind of funkier, uh, more rocking tracks that I responded to. So um, check that out if you're interested. Um, Amy Ray... Uh, has done solo work um, in addition to being in the Indigo Girls. She released six albums over the career and founded the indie record label Damon Records. Emily Salliers has also released a solo album and is a co-owner of Watershed Restaurant in Decatur, Georgia. She's also the initial investor in Flying Biscuit Cafe in Atlanta, which I have been to the one in Gainesville because I think they franchised out since she probably initially invested. So that was interesting. I thought it was a pretty good restaurant. So hopefully she's making money from that as well. Um, both of them, I should say, have long identified as lesbians and are engaged in LGBT rights um, and activism and other causes such as the environment, Native American rights, and abolition of the death penalty. Um, they And they are considered icons in the queer community. Um, so Indigo Girls. I knew Closer to Fine, but I didn't know the rest of this album. So... What did you all think? Matt, I'll let you take the first one. I'll take second. Okay. So I, like you, Josh, knew Closer to Find. Um, I, I don't know. Maybe I heard some of these songs here or there. Uh, this this is like one of my sister's favorite bands. Maybe oh. her favorite. And I, I was always jealous of her because they tour all the time, and she always yeah. gets to see them. And my favorite <laughs> band, Radiohead, like tours once every seven years. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, son of a bitch! Like, I, you get to go see your favorite band all the time. That must be awesome. So, um, and uh, I, yeah, this is it's it's this is folk music, right? You know, folk rock, perhaps you might want to call it that, but it's mm-hmm. it's pretty much a stripped down. You know, uh, every song's essentially you know, two acoustic guitars, harmony, right? Harmony vocals. Yep. Uh, they throw some drums in there. There's some more full band stuff. Like you said, the REM guys play some, play some stuff. And that you can definitely tell that like 
what is it? Try to be true. Love land of Canaan. Those are very kind of more upbeat. There's like a little bit of a birds kind of, you know, yeah. jangle guitar and, and try to be true, which, which I really liked. Um, you know, and I kind of was thinking, you know, and then there's some more mellow songs, you know, like, um, love's recovery, history of us, um, Prince of Darkness. I'm, I'm realizing that a lot of the more mellow songs are Emily Saylor songs mm. um, uh, than, than Amy Ray songs. But so, yeah, so this is a really, it's a really easy, enjoyable listen. This is kind of, you know, somewhat in my wheelhouse, a little bit of the Americana kind of vibe as well. Uh, this, I, I, I was thinking this week, I was like, this kind of reminds me of, of James Taylor, but in a, in a positive way, because I, I much prefer their voices. It's kind of along a similar vein of like that, you know, the soft folk rock kind of, you know, introspective, like, you know, there's a lot yep. of, ref, you know, reflections on life and love and, you know, um, and, and, and things of that nature. I, and I did I did follow along with some of the lyrics. I was able to kind of pick up some themes here or there. Some of it just seemed like throwing a bunch of cool imagery together that didn't really that I couldn't really make heads or tails of. Um, I'm also an idiot, so that that maybe <laughs> I don't I'm always pick up on those things. Idiot. I'm an idiot. Um <laughs> So Kit Fears was a great song, I thought. And, and it was interesting listening to that because I was listening to it and I was going, I think I've heard this before. And so my initial thought was I've heard somebody else cover this. And then I looked up where I might have heard it before. And the, the closest I came to, I guess Jason Isbell in the 400 unit covered this, but mm. I, it wouldn't have been that. And I don't, I still, right, I, I don't know if it, I don't think I heard this as an Indigo girl singing this. I don't know maybe if there was, a band or something that I saw at some point that covered this, like at a show Maybe. that I was at that just kind of stuck with me because it was such a, it's a, it's a cool song. It's got a very, um, it's got a great chorus, I think. And um, it's kind of got this little, it's, there's a melancholy undertone to it and um, a little bit more of a minor key thing, which I always kind of find, you know, more interesting. Um, so it's, it's kind of, it, it strikes me as, earnest you know it's like this very emotive kind of serious yeah. they're they're kind of serious artists that are really you know um ha either they have messages or they have you know just ideas and and emotions that they're trying to get out which i think could be off-putting right if this if you're not into like kind of folk music or the little self-serious you know music this might be a turnoff actually i watched the video for closer to fine and it was oh. just it was hysterical um because they're just like walking around it's very like 80s slash 90s and they're walking around in like torn jeans and just like at some sort of you know abandoned warehouse of some hmm. tin flute comes in they're just all of a sudden there's a bunch of guys and they're they're wearing this really <laughs> it's like this like hat with a feather out of it and some know they're draped like curtains or something like quasi hippie kind of thing so it's a little bit eye rolling at times you know when you're like all right guys come on get over yourselves a little bit but um but musically i this is this this is an easy thumbs up for me uh, i i do like folk music i think their i think their melodies are great i think their harmonies are great um i think the guitar playing it's not it's not terribly intricate but there's some cool little guitar parts that are happening and um I think they're. I think it's a. It's a really solid album. I don't think there's maybe history of us. That might be the last song. It's a little bit long. It's kind of. It drags a little bit. It's a little bit too slow. But for the most part, everything else, uh, thumbs up on. So I enjoyed this record. Nice. Yeah, it's. This is a very interesting one, isn't it? Because um, now nowadays the Indigo Girls are kind of a little bit more mainstream. And when I was growing up, right, the Indigo Girls were not mainstream. They were. Yeah. In some ways, they were. It was a less enlightened time, right? So 
they're candidly, if I'm being honest, I think most people when they thought of the Indigo Girls first thought of um, the issues and especially the fact that they were a definitively lesbian band, right? Yeah. Who identified as lesbian and like unabashedly so, right? right? Not negative. It just was when I grew up with them and and you were to say to me, what's the first thing you think of about the Indian Girls? I would, or Indigo Girls, I would say... Um, that it's like a lesbian band, right? Like right. group. And then the second thing would be closer to fine, right? That would yeah. be the two things I would say. And it's, that wasn't neg I didn't say it with edge, but there was a little bit of a barrier to them because it kind of felt like this music is not for me. And mm -hmm. there was sort of a little bit uh, like as a male, right? It's funny because I think we've established, I love female singers. And in some ways, most of my favorite music is female energy, right? Yeah. But there was that subgenre, right? Of the Indigo Girls and like Ani DeFranco and, and even to some degree, someone who did not um, cultivate that belief, like Tori Amos, right? Who famously did not want to be niched in that, right? To the yeah. point of like sort of rebelling against the idea of Lilith Fair and stuff. But there were barriers where it was like, okay, this, this is music and it may be good, but this is not necessarily music for me. I feel to some degree, Matt, it's like how you've talked about metal before. It's like, like this music exists, but I don't know if I'm the person it's supposed to mm -hmm. be listened to. So I'm just going to kind of like not engage with it for a while. And I think that might have been where the Indigo Girls sat with me for a while. Not a negative thing, but it was sort of like, okay, they exist, but there's a lot of music and this might be for someone who's not me. So then really around like the mid 2000s is when I, it was a more enlightened time and I was more enlightened and I kind of went backwards. Um, it was interesting, by the way, that uh, just as a side effect, the barriers on stuff that was definitively uh, androgynous male-wise did not turn me off of checking any of those music out, interestingly mm -hmm. enough, despite mm -hmm. the fact that I am definitively heterosexual, right? I was, there was nothing about like, oh, this is like androgynous, but this is not for people like me. Somehow the maleness of it, I guess, you know, I guess yeah. was th the lack of barrier. So I just thought of that while I was going, I was like, hmm, that's very interesting because, you know, <laughs> you know, uh, Bowie, the Smiths, like all of these people who are sort of gender bending or, or providing alternate sexuality, right? Didn't stop me at all from engaging with them. So, um, but then when I went back and listened, I quickly realized the second thing, which is that there's like two Indigo Girls to me. There's the Amy Ray songs, which I really connect with. And then there's like the Emily Salyer songs that I connect with a little bit less, if I'm being honest. And mm -hmm. I never quite knew why until I found out later that a, a lot of her solo work and just her influences of Amy Ray are remarkably similar to my influences, right? She has a punk rock background in terms mm -hmm. of what she was interested in. Um and just the stuff just always seems to have a little bit more edge. It's it's absolutely folk music on this album, but there just seems to be a heft to something like uh, Land of uh, Canaan and and uh, uh, Prince of Darkness comes to mind. That or excuse me, not Prince of Darkness. I'm sorry, that's a that's a sailor song. Uh, Blood and Fire, right? Um, Kid Fears, right? That Matt did. I don't know what it is. There's just a, there's an edgierness and a heftiness to it. There also aren't as many words, I think, as there are in some of the uh, Salyer songs. Hmm. Now, Secure Yourself is an exception to that rule. That is a very word-heavy song. But So, 
from that end of things, I look at this as when, when I look at most of the Amy Ray songs, um, I very much connect with them. Uh, the other, the Emily Salyer songs, like History of Us, Matt mentioned, is a little long. Love's Recovery doesn't do as much for me. Um, Closer to Fine is definitely, definitively mm-hmm. a great song. Um, so that one pops up. But even Prince of Darkness stretches to that, like, five minutes and 22 seconds. Yeah. You know, History of Us gets to 520. And kind of, for me, folk music, about four and a half minutes is about the overstay because then I feel it starts to become a loop a little bit and a little bit more chanty, which I think some people love about folk music, like return to the verse, same, you know, second verse, same as the first, you know, third go out. And, and I know Matt, that is less of a barrier for you historically, like revisiting that. But for me, a couple of those dragged a little bit more. And I thought it was notable that closer to fine checks in at three fifty nine lengthwise compared to some of the other ones um, because it's the perfect length so this is definitely a thumbs up for me is that michael stipe singing on kid fears yes that is Mm -hmm. okay yeah i was like because i I did not expect that and i was like wait a second that's pretty clear like i knew that they were from georgia but you said that right did you say that josh yeah Mm -hmm. you did yeah okay I, i somehow i missed it along the way but like i figured oh georgia and georgia why didn't i put two and two together and obviously michael stipe at this point, he was not out, I guess, yet, but it was certainly already being rumored, right? And yeah. um, he at least was cutting sort of a more um, ambiguous front, I'd say, sexuality-wise. So um, it makes sense on a lot of fronts, where they're from, musical style, um, sort of that shared allyship. But um, yeah. Yep. What do yeah. you think, Josh? Yeah, they recorded this album in Athens, where a lot of the REM, oh, wow, okay. at the same yeah. studio where a lot of the REM albums were recorded and I, I guess a bunch of other bands as well um pylon so, right was in that uh, that general oh, yeah. woods that we covered yeah uh b52s, B-52s. right mm-hmm. yeah. john Keane studios in athens georgia so. there was another so, one too was it um was it guadalcanal diary were yeah, they, they were, from georgia so. too okay mm-hmm. yeah so yeah i um i thought this album was pretty good i knew closer to fine i didn't know any of the other ones i like you guys um just kind of never really listened to them outside of their singles that i heard on the radio the i didn't think about the split between their songwriting in this in the songs but it's true i i do respond more to the ones um that are from amy ray um when when you were listing those off i appreciate they're harmonizing. I think that works really well throughout the album. And I think that adds like a depth to, mm-hmm. to their sound. That's really good. Um, I think the, the fact that they both play acoustic guitars, I think that can kind of, kind of wear on me a little bit at times, but they then add stuff to certain songs to flesh it out. Like when Michael Stipe comes in on kid fears or when our, the rest of REM comes on, tried to be true or even land of Canaan, which kind of has a more full sound to it. And I think that kind of balances out the, um, the acousticness of it. I think I like when they add more to the songs, um, when it's kind of bigger, it feels the songs feel kind of like small and personal when, um, it's just them and the acoustic guitars. And I don't really respond to that as much. 
Um, there's a lot of religious and like spiritual imagery and lyrics throughout, not just on the title tracks or on the track titles, you know, like Land of Canaan, Prince of Darkness, those could be considered, you know, religious-esque and um, a lot of like existential like issues and, and pondering on these songs as well. So yeah, I agree, Matt, it's a pretty earnest album. And I think there's, there's not a lot here for me that like feels like fun and joyous, which I think, yeah. um, <laughs> which they may, you know, this is their second, you know, first major release album. So they probably explored that in subsequent albums or something for all I know. But, and I, I feel like listening to their most recent album, there is kind of some more like playfulness and, and lightheartedness in it. So it, it may just be this album, but that kind of like weight of the songs kind of, I felt that listening to this album. So it wasn't like really a fun listen for me, even though I appreciated aspects of it. And um, yeah, so I, I'm, I'm glad I listened to it. Emily always really likes singing closer to fine impromptu unprompted. So um, she was, enjoyed listening to the album as well and the um and i think there's enough here that uh it's a good introduction to like kind of their ethos and like what they are and and um probably you know some of those later albums in the 90s that went platinum if you like this you'll probably like some of their other stuff more um i'm guessing and uh, so yeah, I, th I thought this was interesting. I'm giving it like a thumbs in the middle. I didn't like truly love it, but I, uh, I appreciated it more and respected it more than, um, being like super into it. Yeah. There's a simplicity to this that I definitely liked. It mm. wasn't trying to be anything that it wasn't, it was lived in and I appreciate the authenticity of it. Um, I'm not always the biggest fan of folk music, but to me, the two things you got to have, or you got to have if you're two people, you gotta have good harmonies, which they have. And you gotta have, for me, songs that don't fall into triteness, yeah. you know? And I think the worst thing about folk, folk music is when it becomes try hard. And I did not feel any of these songs were try hard, which is a pretty significant compliment for me about folk music yeah. because the opposite of try hard is authentic. And this always felt authentic to me. And I think that's why their fans love them so much because mm. you can't fake authentic. Oh yeah. And, uh, and you, I never got any idea that they did not feel the feelings or express the ideas, you know, right. Like real, really, they were lived in real experiences, not trying to manufacture a feeling, you know, yep. and, and they, they're very personal. They're not writing about other people. Um, you know how sometimes you can like how Bob Dylan, right. Was always slightly detached um, this is, this seems much more, the personal is political, um, yep. as a theme. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. That's a good point. Um, they are, the songs definitely do feel very personal and maybe that was kind of a barrier too. I like couldn't, uh, you know, relate to them in some way or something. But. I think, I think for me too, this also, even though this was recorded in an 88 released in 89, this album, this, the sound behind this is also very, for me, re very reminiscent of like college, right? Cause mm -hmm. I, you know, just it, it's that, you know, kind of along the line of the really? Dave Matthews. You're... Yeah. Yeah. Oh, because okay. because like me. I'm thinking of like um, 
I, I just I knew people that would you know in, in their dorm rooms would be playing songs like like Closer to Fine for sure. <laughs> That's the it's difference between like, a liberal arts college and a big public university, isn't it? I think. Yeah. Oh bit, yeah. yeah. And like Guster, <laughs> that's another band. You know, oh, like geez. these these OAR. these like college. Well, OAR was a little bit peak, after me. Peak New England <laughs> you know? liberal arts. Mm-hmm. Yes. So it's so it's very so when I'm listening, I'm like, gosh, this I you know because I was in college in you know the mid late nineties, you know, and so yeah. this this was very popular you know in the dorms this type of sound you know um that that i was experiencing so um and the other thing and it just as you were talking john about like because i agree i think that there was a part of me that you know in in a similar way to something like janet jackson like just going back to like me tying this into you know artists that i was familiar of because of my sister and the you know the stuff that she would listen to and there was kind of like you know in some ways there was like a that was a barrier because i kind of viewed us as different like well she listens to different stuff that i do but there is a little bit of that here too because yeah you're kind of feeling like maybe this music is probably not for me because you know i've I've never seen a uh, Indigo Girls concert, but I was at a, a similar con- another artist that's kind of similar is Melissa Etheridge, right? That has like mm, a similar mm-hmm. kind of fan base, and so I was at a Melissa Etheridge show, and but she's just, way more rooted in rock music. She Melissa sure Etheridge. she is, but yeah. but in terms of like you know the persona and you know and and and, and the messaging and stuff like that, they're, they they run in similar lanes, and so it's yeah. just it's it just reminds me of you know how you're at a certain concert and it just oh. like. The, the, the oh, culture only, itself is just like embedded in, in, in the people that are there. And it's always interesting how that plays out. I'll only push back on that and that I'm sure there were a lot of people from like the Midwest, right, who didn't have a knowledge of the fact that Melissa Etheridge and Indigo, the Indigo Girls shared sort of a uh, similar fan base, some of which is because of sexual orientation, right? Yes. But like I definitely could see some people who listen to rock who are like, listen, like come to my window, you know, uh, come to my window or yeah. I buy the only one who are like this song rocks in a way that I don't think they ever would have right with an Indigo girl song. No, correct. And I, and I, I think yeah. in that sense, right? Like I think Melissa Etheridge's fan base naturally had a lane to be much larger. I think than that's the Indigo true. Girls. That's definitely At, true. In, in yeah. 1994, you know, maybe not now, but certainly in the nineties, I feel yes. like, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those songs were everywhere also. Those Melissa Etheridge songs. That's a good show. It's yeah. a good show. Well, and she she's another one who kind of like was famously like not super comfortable being niched, right? Like she's like, mm. most of my heroes are like male guitar player dudes. And so yeah. like I want to play for people with whom I identify, but I also want to play for audiences that male guitar player dudes would play. I think in a way that the Indigo Girls were like, didn't necessarily need to, right? Like, I think they were looking at it as we were broadening it, but we're also a part of a scene, right? Where I don't know if that would have been enough. Now I'm playing amateur psychologist, which I hate doing, but (laughs) I, I just saw enough interviews with Melissa Etheridge where, you know, like she made it a point to say, you know, I like playing, playing in a band with, with dudes, you know what I mean? Sometimes like the energy, you know, and I don't, mm-hmm. I don't know if that energy, you know, had to be there, right. For the Indigo girls. I don't think they were like, we need to bring well, a few they more both, dudes both in this. The, 
Yeah. They were both in the Lil' Affair crowd with like, you know, Sarah McLaughlin. I mean, you know, so there was just similar like kind of like female artists that I think were more. Yeah. And and maybe, Melissa Etheridge maybe not as good of, a, of an example, but I, there were a ton of like of women, particularly like, you know, more women that look to be a little bit more on the, the lesbian side of the, of, of, of the aisle. Which, so I um, never processed Melissa Etheridge that way. I'll be well, honest. I'm just, I, I just her, I remember like, how I processed like Lenny Kravitz. You know, like in the sense that they're like guitar playing sort mm -hmm. of, you know, they listen to a lot of the blues and Aerosmith and, you know, that like kind of that lane a mm -hmm. little bit. Um, so, yes, she could fit into. Um, I, and this is just, I just uh, this yeah. is my my thoughts on a, right. on a show that I saw like in 1995. And I just remember it's like, wow, this is a different crowd than. The last show that I went to, you know what I mean. So, um, which would more much more female dominated, but uh, that was my only point. That it's just depending on what show you're at, and maybe what time you're at that show too, right? Like this, the, the crowd that comes out is a reflection. It's like a culture, right? M music is the culture, yeah. and, and they reflect each other. So, um, in one way, shape, or form. Perfect. <clears throat> well, I I think for Matt and I, it sounds like um, thumbs up. Mm -hmm. um, and for Josh, it was thumbs in the middle, right? Kind of right there. Yeah, when when they mentioned kind of capitalizing on the other artists that were popular, like Tracy Chapman and Suzanne Vega and 10,000 Maniacs, I, I kind of like all of those artists more than this album um, from the ones that we've that we talked about. So. I do too. I'm a little bit more of a fan of, uh, like if we talk 10,000 Maniacs, um, yeah. for sure. I, I like the fact that they pushed into some jangle pop and indie a little bit more. Who else yeah. did you mention there? Uh, Tracy Chapman and Suzanne Vega. Uh, I like the Suzanne Vega album more than I like this one. I would say I was equal. I felt this album and the Tracy Chapman album were very similar in terms mm. of my overall view on them. Yeah. Gotcha. It even rooted to the fact that they each have a massive gigantic song on it that anchors yeah. <laughs> right. the song. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right, Josh, the floor is yours, right? Your your album number two? Nope. Matt, Matt is... Or it's Matt. I'm sorry, you just did it. I apologize. He's got a huge, huge uh, bio. Madonna, oh, yeah, I was looking at... you Madonna. Holy cow. I was looking yeah. at both of your... Good I was, luck. I have, the Wiki, I have the Wikipedia things up on both of your albums, and I'm like, man, a paragraph? Like... Yeah. Oh, I don't I don't use Wikipedia, so it's... Yeah, I don't know what it well, is. Well, I so. do, and and I'm, I was yeah. just looking at... Yeah, the Madonna entries are substantial. So um, anyway, Madonna's like a prayer. Um, and I'll run some numbers here. So it comes in at number 134 in the 1980s on Best Ever Albums, number 13 in 1989, number 876 of all time. It's Madonna's second highest rated album behind 1998's Ray of Light. Um, it did make Rolling Stones list, coming in at number 331. And it's the only album that we we're covering tonight that made Rolling Stones list. And um, Wait, did you say this was the second highest rated after Ray mm -hmm. of Light? Yep, oh, okay. Ray of Light's number one. Um, the album that we covered before, her debut album, self-titled, is the third-ranked album. Yeah, Ray of Light is a really highly regarded album. Yeah. So. And we're going to, mm -hmm. we'll cover that in the next season of CTS, yeah. in a full episode. It's interesting because it's like Madonna meets like all the electronic music Great. I talked about not listening to. So it'll be interesting for mm -hmm. me. Yeah, I remember the song. I just don't, I'm surprised because yeah. Like a Virgin and kind of 80s Madonna's. Like a Virgin is number five. Okay. And True Blue is True Blue four. is probably yeah. four. I'm yeah, actually really kind of like shocked four. we didn't cover True Blue. Yeah, yeah it's ranked two. <laughs> True Blue is two twenty six in the nineteen eighties. And I'll just spoil the. I uh, think that's her best selling album. Okay. So True like Blue, twenty one million copies. Yeah. Um, 
And Madonna's ranked number 187 of overall artists on Best Ever Albums. And I guess I'm inverting this, but whatever. In the opening montage, you heard a clip from Express Yourself. And now you're going to hear a clip from Like a Prayer. Josh cued that upright. You just heard the best part of Like a Prayer, which in my opinion is the best Madonna song. So there you go. Are you talking about when it drops yeah, right into there. the chorus? or what? Uh, no, I, I'm talking about the bridge. Oh, okay. No, Wait, so your favorite all-time Madonna song is Like a Prayer, huh? Easily. Hmm. Huh. Okay. I, not that I don't like it, but I, I wow. I, it does not pop that definitively for me compared to the rest as it clearly okay. does for you. Yeah. I'm gonna have to think about that. That might be an essential. Close question. number two. Close <laughs> number two. Oh, Into I know the mine. groove. Yeah. What's Into yours, the groove is a great one. Uh, uh, when I, uh, what's my all-time favorite Madonna song? Yeah, yeah. Ooh, that's that's a tough question. Um, I I have to think about that. I'll come back to that. Yeah. Okay. Josh, do you have an answer? Or do you want to think about it too? Uh, I think Material Girl is my favorite. Um, okay. Maybe like old a school. I don't know. Yeah, I like the. Josh likes the Madonna. old school. Old <laughs> like school. I like. I like. Most of mine would be ballads. Um. Mm. I'll, well, I'm gonna save that take till we talk about the song. All right. So here we go. Let's 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 run some um, uh, information here. Uh, so this is Madonna's fourth album. It was recorded between September of 1988 and January of 1989. It was released on March 21st, 1989. So a little history on Madonna. She was born Madonna Louise Ciccone. On August 16th, 1958, in Bay City, Michigan. John, have you ever been to Bay City, Michigan in your college years? I have. In fact, one of my, my freshman year roommate was from Bay City, Michigan. Oh. So, mm-hmm. Anything cool about it you can tell us besides Madonna for being from there? Working class town, I'd say. Mm-hmm. Suburb, like many places, a suburb of Detroit. Um, yeah. It was, I guess, the best way to describe Michigan is you have like what I call the white flight suburbs of Detroit, and then you have the ones that couldn't quite go all the way there, right? So they're more mm. diverse, and Bay City's more in the second category. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so her parents, she was born her... She named after her Madonna. And her father, Silvio Anthony Ciccone. Um, and I didn't know... I knew Madonna's mother died, but I didn't realize how, how young she died at. Um, she, she passed away on December 1st, 1963, from breast cancer at the age of 30. <laughs> And Madonna was only five years old. At five that years time, old. So. Yep. I remember hearing that in the biography. Yeah. Yep. So she was raised in the in the those Detroit suburbs that John was talking about. And in 1966, her father. So just a couple years after the death of her mother, her father married the housekeeper Joan Gustafson. Was not terribly happy about that. She was pretty resentful of um, him hitching up with the housekeeper. Uh, Madonna yeah. actually did pretty well. In, Pretty before. well in school. Um, she wanted to kind of, you know, impress her father. So she really studied hard and got probably better grades than anybody else, any other siblings. 
She took dance lessons and eventually earned a dance scholarship to the University of Michigan. Uh, and two years later, in 1978, she dropped out of college and moved to New York. $35 in her pocket. And she somehow found an apartment and, and did secure work at a Dunkin' Donuts, as well as some uh, working with some modern dance troops. Uh, she also studied uh, dance under famed dancer and choreographer Martha Graham and worked as a backup dancer to some already established artists. Uh, she she started dating a man named Dan Gilroy. This is actually a, th a theme that a running theme with Madonna. She, she generally seems to whoever she ends up working with, whatever male figure she works with, she ends up dating. Hmm. Um, so this happens quite quite often. I mean, and, you can um, kind of see how it would happen. I mean, she's got a presence. <laughs> uh, just yeah. a tad, yeah. Probably would uh, be pretty overwhelming if you were around her all the time. So so she and this gentleman Dan Gilroy together formed a band called The Breakfast Club. So this, she was her first band, and she sang and played drums and guitar. Uh, in 1980, she left the band with a drummer and former former boyfriend, Stephen Bray, to form another band called Emmy and the Emmys, and they became romantically involved again and wrote some songs together. But soon after this, Madonna decided to break off and just start to pursue a solo career. In March of 1990, I contract with Gotham Records, and she frequented some nightclubs to get DJs to play uh, some of her demos. One DJ in particular, Mark Kamins, took a liking to her music and they started dating. Uh, and Kamins arranged a meeting with Seymour Stein of Sire Records, who signed Madonna to a deal of three songs uh, with, but with the potential to release an album later on. So this is when her debut single, Everybody, was released in October of 1982. And she also performed a song on, on her first television appearance in January of 1983. Uh, she also had a, her next song, Burning Up, was released in March of 83. And both of those singles reached number three on the Billboard Hot Dance Club song chart. What's the uh, song so on the Vision Quest soundtrack that she sings and makes an appearance? Live in to Tell. Oh, okay, that's a good song. That might be my favorite Madonna <laughs> song. So, as I was thinking about it, yeah. That might yeah. be three for me, John, actually. So... Mm -hmm. uh, so follow, So she has some success with those singles, and she hired uh, Warner hired Reggie Lucas to produce her self-titled debut album. Uh, she was kind of displeased with how it was coming out, so she recruited another uh, producer to help remix. This person's by the name of John Jellybean Benitez. <laughs> uh, came in and remixed some of the songs and produced the song Holiday, and the album was released in July of 83 and peaked at number eight on the Billboard Top 200, so it did pretty well right out of the bat. Um, in the fall of 1983, her new manager, Freddie DeMann, secured a meeting with John Peters, who asked her to play a part in the upcoming film, Vision Quest. So there you go, Josh. That was her first. So Madonna did a lot of acting, and this was her first acting gig. Yep. Uh, she gained more notoriety by performing on American Bandstand at Top of the Pops and became an inspiration and fashion icon. So obviously Madonna is known for... Uh, setting the trend of some of, of, of the fashion style of the time. Uh, the uh, she it led young girls and women to file her, uh, follow her style, and um, the style was created by a, a style by the name of Maripol. That's just Maripol, like Madonna or Cher, just Maripol. Uh, and that look consisted of lace tops, skirts over capri pants, fishnet stockings, jewelry bearing the crucifix, bracelets, and bleached hair. So just the quintessential early 80s Madonna look. So she released her second album, which is Josh's favorite, apparently, Like a Virgin, in November <laughs> yeah. of 1984. And this became her first number one album in, in many countries, including the U.S. and the United Kingdom. 
became the first album to, by a female to sell over 5 million copies in the U.S., and it went on to sell over 21 million copies worldwide. The, uh, the title track, so this is where Madonna, Madonna starts to get some controversy, and she's pretty well known for a lot of controversial uh, mm-hmm. uh, situations throughout her career. Okay. Uh, was the first single. Uh, topped the Hot 100 chart for six consecutive weeks, and it also attracted the, attracted the attention of conservative organizations who complained that the song and its video promoted pr- premarital sex and undermined family values, which was a big no-no for them. So um, they try to get the the song and the video banned. Um, she performed the song at the first MTV Video Music Awards in 1984, uh, and later MTV called it one of the most iconic pop performances of all time. And actor Sean Penn, and they married on her birthday in 1985. So she continued her acting career by playing the title role uh, of the 1985 film Desperately Seeking Susan, which yielded the hit Into the Groove, my second favorite Madonna song. So there you go. That's on my watch list. I haven't seen it, but I heard it's pretty good. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, She embarked on her first tour at that time called the Virgin Tour with the Beastie Boys as the openers. I think we might have talked about that a little bit when we covered yep. the Beastie Boys. Yeah, the Beastie Boys have some good stories about that tour in the, in the <laughs> book and Madonna. I'm, sh- I'm sure. Did they get along okay, Josh? Yeah, she. Um, yeah, they said that they got along well and that mm-hmm. they kind of um, – Madonna was kind of like – you know, she was older than them at that point, you know, by – a certain amount and they kind of viewed her as like being she was already kind of like in this other tier and like kind of different like mode than they were at the time yeah like they kind of viewed her as like an an older girl that was just kind of like you know way like classier and above them than (laughs) they were yeah that probably would have been a fun show to see uh and in uh june of 1986 she released her third album true blue which had five number one singles uh, can you name all of them, John? Uh, True Blue single. Well, you got the self-titled. Yep. You've got La Isla Bonita. Mm-hmm. You've got Papa Don't Preach. Mm-hmm. You have uh, oof, um, uh, Material Girl. Nope, that's on. That's like on a different right. one. Okay. Yeah. You had mentioned the song already. Live to Tell. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's on there. That's right. Yep. And then, um, hmm. Open now, your heart. Open your heart. Yes, yep. that video with the little boy. I yeah. always remember. Dancing. I wanted yeah. to be that little boy. Yep. Yes. <laughs> uh, so yeah, so they all hit number one. So that was a pretty man. She pretty has a lot of good album. singles. <laughs> yeah, she sure does. Uh, it topped the charts in 28 different countries. It's her best-selling album with sales over 25 million, and in 1992 was listed as the best-selling album by a female artist of all time. It is now the 12th highest-selling album of all time by a female artist. So. Hmm been eclipsed by like Celine Dion and Taylor Swift by like five times each or something. <laughs> um, so she, then she starred in the critically panned film, Shanghai Surprise. Josh, have you seen that one? No, but I know it by reputation. Yeah. She received her first golden raspberry award, the Razzie <laughs> for worst actress. Uh, and then in 87, she starred in who's that girl. And uh, shortly after that, she filed for divorce from Sean Penn in December of 87, but she actually withdrew that petition a few weeks later. Uh, then she went on to Broadway. So she's lots of acting here. She debuted in the production of Speed the Plow for May through August of 1988. 
And then she filed an assault report on Penn in, on New Year's Eve in 1988 and filed for divorce again, this time for real, on January 5th, 1989. She actually asked that no charges be filed and later said that Penn, even though there are rumors that Penn was physically abusive towards her, she denied that and said that that, that never happened. Hmm. So this was a pretty difficult time for Madonna. Uh, she was getting all the panned reviews of her, of her movies and uh, her impending divorce. The fact that she had just turned 30, which was the age of her mother when she died. Um, and she, uh, you know, was reported that her Catholic upbringing you know, started to kind of intensify the guilt that she f associated with that, you know, background was intensifying, even though it's been there with her her entire life. Um, and so she decides that she wants this album, her fourth album, to kind of be a little bit more of a mature record. She, she figured that she and her fans were both growing up and she wanted to reach larger audiences by trying something different. Uh, she wanted to be more personal. And, uh, and, and kind of started sifting through her various journal entries and writings from the mm -hmm. past. Um, to create uh, an album that dealt with various themes, including her relationship with Sean Penn, her family, her lost mother, and her belief in God. Uh, you know, th these thoughts and stuff that she was writing down, never, she never initially intended them to be uh, put to music or put on her album, but she decided that that's what she wanted to do with them later on. And she viewed it as her most different work to date, and a coming-of-age record based, on, uh, based more on her past uh, musical influences than what was the trend of the time. Uh, for this record, she worked with a couple producers, Patrick Leonard and Stephen Bray, who she was with earlier. She was with Emmy and the Emmys, so he's making an appearance here. Prince also collaborated on this by producing and co-writing the third track on the record. And um, uh, uh, Patrick Leonard was also going through some personal turmoil, and he was Madonna's principal co-writer throughout this record. Uh, they generally kind of did, they did the traveling Wilburys thing where they kind of just wrote a song in a day, you know, so they're just wow. kind of going through stuff pretty quickly. Uh, they didn't really change a whole lot. Once they got a song written down, they didn't, they didn't have to go through too many revisions. Um, I liked this story here. The packaging of the first pressings of the CD cassette and LP were scented with patchouli, uh, <laughs> to, to simulate, to simulate church incense, um, and also, this has been Madonna's idea was also to create a flavor of the 60s and from the church. So you get original pressings smelled like patchouli oil. Uh, in January of 1989, she signed a $5 million endorsement deal with Pepsi. And uh, in, one, in the commercial, she debuted the song Like a Prayer. This was a two-minute commercial. So this was, like the, this was how she was going to reveal her album to everybody. And um, Pepsi also sponsored her upcoming Blonde Ambition Tour. Uh, the the two-minute commercial was entitled Make-A-Wish, and it portrayed Madonna going back in time to her childhood memories, and an estimated 250 million people around the world viewed the commercial. And then the next day, the video for Like a Prayer aired on MTV and was met with immediate... <laughs> Controversy. <laughs> ...sex. Uh, they called for a ban on Pepsi, and eventually Pepsi had to, had to cave, and they canceled their partnership with Madonna, Though they did allow her to keep the five million dollars that they, um, they, that's that's how badly they wanted to get her <laughs> off of their brand. So, uh, so so definitely some controversy there, which we can get into. But I'm gonna stop there. We're gonna um, cover Madonna again, like I said in the '90s when we cover Ray of Light. So I'll pick up that bio from there. There's plenty enough here to to digest on as it is. So John, I think you have the first take here. What do you think of Like a Prayer? Yeah, this is. Um it's just so fascinating to listen to Madonna's music because she's 
like four different careers in the yeah. 80s, isn't she? She's like young New York, st- almost like street urchin Madonna, <laughs> right, on the first one. No, it's what, kind of what her vibe yeah. is, right? Yeah. She's just... She's, you know, she's making, she's hustling. She's getting it done in New York. Uh, she's, she's pretty, but she hasn't gone into like full sex symbol yet. You know, she's and she wasn't more, shaving her armpits either at the time. You know, yeah, she she's was, just yeah. like, she's just like, yeah, the person that you're like, boy, you know, she really, you know, leaned into it a little bit. She could be really pretty, but she's also tough, you know, because you have to be to make it in New York. So she's got that. And all those songs sort of feel like they just caught the moment, like Borderline and Lucky yeah. Star. They just... It just feels like it's like her against the world. She's going for it. And then you've got like Like a Virgin where she becomes a full-on pop star and definitely begins to, um, I guess what you'd call sex it up a little bit, right? Like there's a clear sexuality to that. I mean, you don't name an album Like a Virgin, right? Without knowing exactly what you're doing. And the videos are much more... um, you know, overt and stuff, and the songs are bigger, you know. And, and MTV and, performance, too, is, like, right. iconic in that regard. Yeah, yeah. in the wedding dress. And, yeah. and she, there's just an ambition that was always there on the first one, but now her ambition's not just to to have a single, right? It's to now be a huge pop star. And then you've got True Blue Madonna, where she's leaning into, like, the, the movie star full... Like, she's almost like how all the pop stars now talk about themselves as a brand now, but Madonna kind of was, like, the proto of that, that she was going full brand, right? Like, movies, uh, albums, uh, the, the art part of it. Yep. She's signing endorsement deals, so she's got, you know, Madonna as brand. She also, at that point, was getting very eclectic with her... She always has brought in elements of different music, but in that she was very deliberate about bringing in like Spanish themes and stuff like that. And then this is sort of like I feel Madonna's like concept album, right? Like this is Blonde Ambition Madonna. This is like Madonna as established brand. It's a sexy album, but she's also talking about weighty issues on this, right? Yeah. Like if you, her lyricism is much heavier. Um, I I didn't forget, but my gosh, the song Oh Father is one of like the few songs, but it catches me and I forget that it, it it's just, it, it's a song that can bring a tear to my eye. It's, I feel it is the closest you ever get to getting to know Madonna on any song she ever made. It's so deeply personal. It's so clearly about yeah. her father, her, the way she sings it with her voice breaking kind of is the perfect way to sing it. It's just, it's a beautiful song lyrically. And then how it, even how it talks about like, it could be a little girl, then you realize it's her, but it's also universal. And then at the end, how she gives like absolution to her father. I think she says something like, you know, it's okay. You know, somebody hurt you too and stuff. It's like, damn, the child's, it's really, it is a song that actually can make me kind of tear up a little bit. That's how strong that song is. And it was just, I was listening to the album, you know, one of the times I listened to it while doing it, and that song just came on, and by like the the minute and a half mark, I was like, "Holy shit, this song like really is hitting me for some reason right now." I just wasn't prepared for it, so that's one of my favorite Madonna songs. Uh, Madonna as a as a ballad singer is just incredible. I mean, whether it be this used to be my playground or Take a Bow or um, you know, You'll See is a song from the 
the 90s I love, but also Live to Tell. You know, um, I'll Remember just, from the... I'll Remember. Yeah, yeah there's yeah. just so many great... In some ways, if Madonna had just done ballads, she'd be an icon. You know, and that's not even taking in the rest. Um, like a prayer, like you mentioned, Matt, it's a, it's a, it's an incredible song. It's a gospel song. Yeah. At Madonna singing it. I mean, it's very much if you took gospel and made it also pop along the way. It's 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 a very well constructed song. It has it unfolds in different layers along the way. Uh, it's got the incredible video. The video the, is crazy. <laughs> with the dark-haired Madonna and, you know, all... It's got the dark-haired Madonna. It's got the religious imagery. It's got the... In the 1989 era, like the interracial... Yeah. Not only an interracial relationship, but also, like, clearly depicting, like, Jesus is black. You know, like, there's this all... You know, the burning crosses. The I mean, commentary. Ma- also. The so- well, also, <laughs> Madonna, like, being, like, overtly religious, but then also cutting to her, like, in full buxom, you know, <laughs> mode. Which, everything, by the way, is done on purpose here, which yeah. is what I love about Madonna. Like, she... She's, you know, back, you know, she was a dancer. She's an artist, right? So she's well aware of how all these things are going to hit, right? And and her choice of outfit is particularly funny because it's like she went for fullest in bloom female to juxtapose the religious imagery, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I texted you guys this week. I'm like, this might be the best Madonna video album because Cherish is a really sexy video in an understated way. It's just basically like Madonna on a beach, but right. it just works. <laughs> I don't know. How, yeah. She's in like a like 1920s swimsuit too. So it's not like, I don't know how to describe it. It's just, no, she, she looks just has really like, good in that video. Yeah, It's perfectly shot. It's very artistic. It's in the way that a lot of, black and white videos of the time where I think of like Wicked Game by like Chris Isaac, right? was another black and white stylistic video. Um, yeah, I mean, it's just, it, she's just effortlessly like sexy in that video in a different way than she's sexy in, you know, Express Yourself is a huge video, right? Is that a Mark Romanic video, I think, Express Yourself? Uh, that is, I want to say that's David Fincher. Is that David, David Fincher? Fincher? Yeah, and it's, that's a and David it's Fincher. at the time, it cost $5 million to make, yeah. making it the most expensive video ever until Michael Jackson and Janet Jackson did Scream, which was like yeah. $12 million. So like, yeah, like, like I think the of, there were a couple music video people like, you know, David Fincher, Mark Romanek. There were just these people in that era that like you could, uh, yeah. uh, Stefan, I always forget his, it starts with the S. He's like a French, he, he did a bunch of videos that were, you know, uh, very noticeable, you know, and then later as the decade, you know, the mid nineties comes, you get other ones that come in like, you know, hype Williams, right. With the fisheye lenses and spike Jones and all these different people. But you forget that Mark Pellington was another guy that used to make a lot of videos. Um, I think he made like Jeremy famously and stuff like that. But yeah, those are incredible videos. They're, they're just, they solidify Madonna as both a pop star. And and then you got the live performance, right? That's the other piece of Madonna. She's a huge, Star. This album did have some filler, especially the last couple tracks. That's why it doesn't rise quite to the level of my favorite pop albums, because what stood out about my favorite, favorite pop albums, like uh, Thriller and Rhythm uh, Nation 1814 and to some degree 1999 by Prince is just the absolute lack of any filler in them. It's like all killer, no filler, right? Along the way. And so that's the only thing that holds it back. But boy, these singles and the variety, and it kind of works as an artistic statement for Madonna too. It's sort of vaguely about, you could tell lyrically, thematically, it's about what Matt talked about as one of the themes, like 
Madonna ambition, icon, sexuality mixed with like I was raised like a blue collar Catholic girl, right? And yeah. you know, she's talking more personally than she might have in other sketches. There's not a lot of uh, winking and nodding like there was in earlier Madonna albums or sort of frivolity. This is a very serious album for her. Uh, even the singles are serious, right? Like Express Yourself is a serious song. Like a Prayer is a, is a relatively serious love song. Mm -hmm. Oh Father's about serious stuff. Um, Cherish is probably the only one that kind of goes into some of what she was going in True Blue, right? Where it's yeah. sort of a throwback to like that 50s, 60s girl group type feel along the way in like a love song. Um, but yeah, this one gets a thumbs up for me. Um, and it's another thing. I, I don't know if people in the modern context quite appreciate how big Madonna was. I think it's been appropriated as, oh, she was big, but there's other people in like today, like Taylor Swift and like Beyonce, right? Come to mind immediately, Rihanna, that did it. But, I, you know, I don't know if it's generational or if it's just you have to understand them to understand Madonna. But Madonna seemed to operate on like a plane bigger than even the biggest of the female pop stars in some way. The only person I could really compare in my lifetime female as being as big, big as her to me was probably Beyonce and uh, Mariah Carey, probably are the other two that I would say. Even like Rihanna and Taylor Swift don't quite rise to the level to me of omnipresence that Madonna had as a female pop star. I don't know where you guys stand on that, but... Well, yeah, she just, Madonna seemed to impact the culture in terms of even, yeah. like, girls dressing like her as a result. Like, I don't know if that's happening nowadays, like, making a fashion statement. I mean, yeah, that Rihanna has a fashion line or, you know, mm -hmm. label, but she, her, the way, way she dresses, is not is that causing well, and, people to And I compare like her, Rihanna? I said this uh, back, that I compare her to David Bowie in that for, like, 20 years, she just always figured out what the next thing was and was able to, like, get into it you know what I mean? and it yeah. wasn't now later she kind of got criticized right in the 2000 like when she kind of lost the ability to be ahead of it or it seemed like she was latching on to it as opposed to being at the avant-garde front of it but from about 1983 till about 2000 right she was sort of always she sort of had the zeitgeist a little bit in the way that I always said like David Bowie of the 70s and early 80s just seemed to always kind of figure it out yeah. like where the culture was going. And sometimes she led people there, like Vogue, which we didn't even cover here, right? Like she basically brought the gay subculture to like a song that could sell like 12 million units, which yeah. sat like, I guess nowadays where it's more accepted, right? That like elements of gay culture have seeped into the mainstream. But like in 1990, are you kidding? Like, no way that wasn't right. happening then. So um, that's an example I think of, you know, um, yeah, and, and some of the stuff she does, you don't even recognize it as being as transcendent as it is because it's been, people have taken elements of it along the way to the mm -hmm. point where it seems like it's always been done when it didn't. So yeah, this gets a this gets a strong thumbs up for me. Yeah, strong thumbs up for me too. I must have listened to this at some point, but I forgot all, all of it or the order or some of the songs that were on here. What, um, it's, it's such a kind of strong eclectic album while also feeling personal which is what you guys brought up i definitely heard that and felt that when you know 
talking about the religion and and relationships and her past childhood like that stuff kind of I, I felt the weight of that on these songs despite them being extremely catchy for the most part um i i watched all the videos john after you said um after you mentioned that on all the singles so that was uh beneficial as well but this i mean it's just a testament to how either great her songwriting is or the fact that she can craft a pop song because you know with the one-two punch of like a prayer and express yourself uh in the opening of the album that's such a statement to to um what you're about to get into and like kind of where she's at and the fact that both of those songs are huge and the videos are huge and it's just um she's kind of you know peak madonna in in this form here um i really liked and enjoyed discovering kind of the the deeper cuts on this album that i didn't remember or know like love song which i knew right away was a prince song it just sound has that prince sound it's kind of so off beat and off kilter um it's kind of got this weird uh tempo or cadence to it with both of them singing on it i enjoyed that um till death to his part has this kind of like almost like new wave beat which is really interesting um and was another kind of upbeat fun song uh cherish which i had forgotten was was great and i loved listening to that that was a classic and i agree i I thought of that as more of like a throwback to her to her earlier time period it it sounded like that dear jesse was the the one song that was like really uh infectious to me and sneaky in yeah, terms great of song. Its, in terms of its uh, um, wording and kind of beat, it's kind of like childlike in a way, and it's got kind of almost like a waltz beat to it. But it's it's and the lyrics are kind of nonsensical intentionally, like in a playful, fantastical sort of way. But that was the song that was like, oh, this there's more than just the the hit. I mean, this was a single also, to be fair, but not one that I knew. Um, and then, yeah, it kind of it tails off uh, towards the end. The um, Keep It Together is kind of funky. Pray for Spanish Eyes was just kind of a weird, <laughs> I mean, there's Spanish guitar in it, but it's kind of a weird one. And then the whole like um, act of contrition um, was like, ex- sounded experimental in some ways almost. But but yeah, this is, this is strong. Is If I wished in some ways we had talked about those kind of true blue and the and like a virgin to kind of get the whole 80s madonna period but this is a a really great representation of who she is as an artist i really enjoyed listening to the album and um i just really enjoyed the variety and kind of her expression she comes through on every track on this song and has so many like kind of different facets to herself that she brings to it that i really enjoyed and um in just in addition with the kind of biographical elements that she and more personal elements that she brings to it. So I think that takes it up another level too. So thumbs up for me for sure. Yeah. I was surprised by this album because I didn't know it. Um, I knew this, I knew the three main singles uh, like a prayer, express yourself and cherish. And I actually owned I true blue. That was, that was, I think I told Bob from Expended Scoop that was the first album I remember buying with my own money was actually True Blue. So yeah. I've known that album for a while, and 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 I was just uh, yeah, this 
even before I started working on the bio, I'm like, man, this is a this is a different Madonna. This is just you know way more. Yeah, way more introspective, less because True Blue is a lot of like bubblegum pop kind of stuff, you know, very, mm -hmm. I mean, there's some serious elements to that for sure. Like, you know, Papa Don't Preach and Live to Tell, there's serious undertones there, but it's, but as a sound sonically, especially like some of the, you know, um, the, the non-single tracks on that are very kind of like, you know, Jimmy, Jimmy, Love Makes the World Go Round, these very right. like almost over the top bubblegum pop stuff, right? Whereas the deep cuts here are kind of like these ballads that are really serious. Wasn't like True depressing. Blue her love letter to the music she grew up loving? I think that's kind it of was, like the theme of that. Yeah, It was that. It was also Sean. It was an album dedicated to Sean Penn. Uh, the, okay. The True Blue was, a, I guess, was something that he would say a lot. So she yeah, that was like a dedication to him. And that's when I guess their relationship was in a good place. So okay. a lot of the songs came out of that. So, so yeah. So when I got to this and I knew, oh, like, like a prayer and express yourself, bam, bam, like just great yeah. bangers. Right. And then the Prince song, like, okay, that's interesting. It's, cer it's certainly a Prince song, right? Like you, like you were saying. Um, and it just never really, I mean, well, except with Cherish, right. Th th those three songs kind of, you know, are all kind of rolled into one as being like the major pop songs, but everything else is kind of like this, interesting different divergent direction that she's going in and um yeah like that the whole the whole thing of the the, the father john you didn't even mention the video you talked you talked about videos because i i didn't know that that was a single so you watched oh, the video fantastic that. video and that and that video even drives home the the sadness and the you know even more you got the the dad like screaming at the little girl and whatever yeah. and it's just like it's this this terrible image that's that's happening and um, yeah, that's a really powerful song. I Another beautifully that, shot video, I'd like to point out. Yeah, yeah. They, she when she would uh, in the tour that she went out, I think it was Blonde Ambition tour uh, after the release of this album, she would play yeah. Live to Tell and Oh Father back to back, and she kind of viewed them as Volume One, Volume Two, like of the same kind of you know song. So, um, yeah. so because I think uh, Live to Tell has to do with you know domestic abuse, right? So um, it's. Yeah, it's very powerful, um, you know, and uh, I, I liked, you know, the I don't think this really tails off to me at the act of contrition, maybe the only song, but that's not even a real song. It's kind of like a hodgepodge of like right. callbacks from like like a prayer and some it's almost, you know, it's like experimental, it's just tape loops and, you know, yeah. and, and stuff that's kind of getting thrown together a little bit like a like a two minute revolution nine kind of a thing, you know, mm -hmm. but, um, but I, I like keep it together. I thought that was the upbeat funk. Some of the songs on here, I think particularly, I think express yourself and keep it together are tributes that she said to Sly and the family stone, you know, trying to get, you know, more of mm -hmm. a funk element into, into the music. Um, I, I thought Spanish eyes was, was, a, was a perfectly, that was a good song. I like her voice on that. Um, yeah. And dear Jesse, it's funny you bring that up. Cause that I was listening. I'm like, man, that's a really, that that one kind of stands out as being maybe the most different because it's just it's a lot of like um uh strings you know it's like yeah. a four-piece string arrangement and then i read later on that people or people have called that out that song kind of like her more of like a beatles song you know kind of like a beatles like a george martin you know scoring like the 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 string part which i thought was kind of interesting i'm like yeah i could kind of hear that type of sound in like a a mid later uh you know era beatles type type song so, um, so very interesting album, and um, I felt like I did like it the more that it went on. Um, I I was just surprised by how kind of, you know, um, a lot of ballads. Right, I thought it was going to be more bangers than ballads, and it's kind of I think it's kind of equal measure. I would yeah. even you know maybe even there's more 
ballads then bangers on this but she's yeah everything you said john about her being like the trendsetter the david bowie for sure i mean that the movies that she was in even though some of them didn't do too well but she's just and she's just getting started right because the movies that she did later on i mean she got with the vita she got the, the oscar nod um dick you know, tracy don't league forget. of their own dick dick <laughs> tracy you know and then she did like well we'll cover more of that but then she did like the 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 basic instinct ripoff that was that with willem dafoe there so she had yeah. a racy and, <laughs> i forgot about you know, that yeah like the bo- body of evidence i think yeah. that's what it was called so um so she's just yeah with between the music the dancing the videos for sure she's like you know she's she, you know she's up there with like michael jackson and some of those other artists of the 80s that just were we didn't mention uh till death do us part which is like the mm-hmm. best type of late 80s late 80s song you can make it yeah. sounds like a late 80s song but it's the best animal of that type of song I was like, this is pretty much the best type of song you could have from that late 80s production yeah possible. I, I really and some of it, it. Yeah, it just was a really, it was a really cool sonic palette, you know, yeah. of, of, and her voice like kind of did the waterfall effect in it, which I really liked um, quite a bit. So, yeah, yeah, that's yeah, right. That's, that that's the divorce song. Hmm. Um, John, uh, okay. David Fincher directed that Oh Father video also. Okay. He yeah, did he that one too. One, yeah. Okay. Yeah. He worked yeah, with it a couple of times. So. It's a beautiful video. It really, it, it like, um. It enhances the song. Not that I feel like you need to be led too much on that song. It's pretty straightforward, but it really does give the imagery with it. Yeah. No. And then like promise to try, like just pretty ballad, like melodically, just like a very pretty song, you know? And and it's also interesting that, you know, Madonna and I think it was Patrick Leonard that she wrote most of these songs with. They just, it's like, it almost seemed like it was an effortless kind of thing. They were just so in sync with each other, you know, Mm -hmm. with with the, the, the point in their lives that they were and, you know, actually, Dear Jesse, I think, was an idea that came from Leonard that was, you know, he kind of, that was Jesse, I believe, was his daughter. And so it's kind of like a, an homage to, to her. And Madonna met the, met the daughter and kind of like ran with that idea a little bit, too. So, so yeah, really, really solid album. Certainly a step forward. I mean, if you guys ever listen to True Blue, it like, it just, it, it, there's, this is Madonna maturing, for sure. Um, mm. and, and, and really kind of making something a lot more personal, um, which with some of the the sadder moments and elements of her life. So, uh, and that comes across, but it also, yeah. But then you've got like a prayer, which is just, I still, when they, when she's building up that court, that, 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 uh, the, the gospel chorus, yeah, that's, it's just, that's awesome. and that bass breakdown that just like kind of gets into the more serious. There's a lot of things happening musically in that song that are just fantastic. And it's, and I, it never gets old. It's absolutely my favorite Madonna song. And it just, it's, it hits me every time. And, um, yeah. So, uh, so yeah, big th- yeah, thumbs up. Really, I, really good record. I will agree with you on one part. Perhaps the best moment of any Madonna song. I don't know if I'd go so far as to say it's the best for me personally. The best is that part when she drops almost spoken word that like home, and then it goes into like the gospel choir. You know what I'm talking about? Like that bridge mm-hmm. where she said, you know, like you know, life is a mystery, and she and she yeah, builds that's up, what I'm talking and about. then that's it's the- like, and it feels like. Home, you know, and she just says it's it a spoken like word, prayer. then boom, it goes to the next part. Yeah, no, that's go, the part. That's, yeah, that's yeah. the part that I had, Josh, because normally I tell Josh, it's almost like, like the just bass put this dropping. song on there. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, that's what. Yeah, and I just, I just put this song on there. But for that one, I was like, I want this particular part because yeah, that they start breaking down the bass line and stuff like that in the production. But it's just the whole thing, and that's yeah, and lyrically, that's what they said that the. 
I think the producer was initially scared because he's like, oh, you're talking about you're both you're both talking about religion and, and your relationship with God, but also like sex. Right. And I don't like you're down on your knees and it's like this double entendre. Don't do like it's too scary. You know, and she's like, no, nope, they clearly know, have so. not read a yeah. lot of literature because you could <laughs> you could you could bankroll a small country for the amount of Catholics who have yeah. also written about sex in various ways. So, yeah. Yeah. So. So, yeah. So it sounds like three pretty strong thumbs up for yeah. Madonna. Yeah. This one gets we'll, thumbs up for me. Yeah. And we'll cover. It'll be a while. It'll probably be two years before we get to Ray Light, but we'll get there. So. <laughs> yeah. Cause that's 98, I think, if I remember. There's a lot of albums we're covering in the 90s. Yeah. I was looking at the spreadsheet. So, yeah. yeah. All right. Well, we are now going to move on to Galaxy 500 on fire. In the montage, you heard Strange, and now you're going to hear a clip from Snowstorm. So this was an interesting one, guys, because um, I... Wait, let me get the numbers here, John. Yeah, go for the numbers. I'm sorry, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep, so On Fire by Galaxy 500. Actually, pretty apropos, because Canada's on fire, and I can smell it in my backyard. <laughs> yes. yes. So, uh, so Galaxy 500 comes in at number 52 in the 1980s on Best Ever Albums, number 5 in 1989, number 388 of all time. It is Galaxy 500's uh, highest-rated album on Best Ever Albums. Did not make Rolling Stones list, and it comes in at number three. And Galaxy 500 actually rated number 340 of all time. Did you say 52 of the 80s? I did say that, Josh. What? Yes, 52 of the 80s. Okay. Highly right. regarded. And yep. the artist is 340 of all time. What That's pretty talking? high. Who's smoking? This al- so this album is... Tipping your hand th- there, Josh. <laughs> this album's the second one of three that Galaxy 500 did. They had a pretty incredible rise they um they formed in 1987 although when i go into the bio you'll see that they formed but there were elements of this ahead of time and they broke up very suddenly in 1991 Uh, a lot of the best info from this bio i have is a long form sort of you know the the history where each of the people are giving their take and people around them are giving their take uh Mm. i forget what that's called but it's like an oral history. There you go. So there is one from 2010 with the three members of this band. I have to say, guys, this is as close to what if the three of us were in a band, personality-wise, would be. There is definitely a John, a Matt, and a Josh in this band. Like, oh, which one without, am I? Without a doubt. And the interesting thing is that two members of the band were a couple who also ended up getting married. Um, like, and so basically from the pre dating the band all the way to today, they are a married couple. So this band is, is basically a couple and a guy. 
is, is how to describe it. So, so who's the, which one of us are married to each other? I'm, I'm not going to say anything. I'm just going to do the bio and then I'll let you guys do it. So the band, uh, the non-member of the couple is Dean Wareham. He is the guitarist and vocalist for the band. You've then got or uh, Wareham, I've seen as well. You could kind of do it together. And he is originally from New Zealand. And drummer uh, Damon Krakowski and bassist and vocalist Naomi Yang. They are the... Uh, the couple together. Um, interestingly, I did a lot of research on this band. There's not a whole lot about their pre-Harvard University days. And this is something to know about this group. They all met each other at the Dalton School in New York City, which is a relatively famous prep school. It's art-focused, I would say, liberal artsy-focused, mm. um, upper-middle-class um, type school. So the three of them are there, and actually all three of them end up getting into and going to Harvard as well. So they were both high school classmates and Harvard classmates, which I thought was very interesting. Wow. Yep, it's, you don't see that very often. Um, but yeah, they met in 1981 when they were in high school. Uh, Damon and Dean were the same age. They were one year older than Naomi was. Um, and so they kind of had a lot of artistic endeavors, all of them, and pretty much, um, Wareham and Krakowski, that's Dean and Damon, in this case, the drummer and guitarist, sort of formed a couple bands, um, along the way, um, just kind of playing and it, it doesn't really work out necessarily, but they're sort of getting to know each other a little bit better musically. And then Wareham, who kind of was... He kind of had an eye on New York all the time. Uh, I should mention that there is a a big New England theme to this band, even though they were in New York City. Their formative playing days and sort of they were identified in their peak as being sort of a Massachusetts or New England band and sound-wise influence. So just something to keep in mind there. Hmm. So they're, they're doing these different bands, and then Wareham goes to New York. However... He comes back in 1987, and they decide to form a band, uh, and that becomes Galaxy 500. Now, the previous member who was in the band uh, decided he didn't want to do it anymore. I believe it was something akin to, like, he had, like, a religious type of deal, like, conversion type deal that kind of said, like, I'm going to kind of follow that muse. They're around a lot of these very seeker-type personalities, and I'd kind of say all of them have a little bit of an element to that as well. Um, and so they, Naomi Yang just volunteers. She goes, I'll learn how to play the bass. And she kind of mentions it in the oral history and some of the stuff I read that she was listening to like a lot of Joy Division albums and she loved the bass lines in Joy Division, especially how high up on the bass they played, right? Which is something I mentioned in Joy Division quite a bit too, which I found kind of, I'm like, she must've been listening to the same parts I was in Joy Division hmm. that was there. So she, yeah, she adopts that style a little bit, the higher up on the bass playing. Uh, along the way, and basically teaches herself how to play the bass, which I thought was really interesting. She just sort of decided to do that. So um, the original band that, that Dean and Damon win was called Speedy and the Castanets, I think was interesting. But it's so they reinvent Galaxy 500 as Speedy and the Gast Castanets just with a new bassist. So um, they name themselves after the Ford Galaxy 500, in case you guys were wondering. That's where the band name comes from. It's a very, very, very ugly car, if you've ever seen it. It's long. It's 
It's it, it was called full size. It's one of those really long, almost Cadillac-looking cars, but an uglier version. Yeah, so not a not a very pretty one. So they just begin to take some space around Harvard and practice and play at some local establishments. And it's kind of amazing. Things start to happen for them relatively quickly. Um, they're playing between Boston and New York City. Uh, Dean uh, uh, Wareham has connections. In New York City, he kind of is considered to be a little bit more of the um, the uh, the st- sort of looking at the style of things, right? A little more visual art, I'd say, a little bit. Uh, they're all uh, both guys are strong personalities in their own way, uh, for sure. Uh, but he sort of wants them to have a New York City uh, presence, although the other two were certainly not against that. Like we said, they. You know, they grew up in New York City, but they're playing a lot in Boston as well. And they record a demo and it goes to a label named Shimmy Disc and a gentleman named Mark Kramer, who would become important because he produces uh, the albums that they release. And they record a single called Tugboat in February of 1988. And it gets released and it starts to get quite a bit of a cult following Uh on indie rock stations, college rock stations, but also it gets well-reviewed in the United Kingdom, where they start to become pretty well-known and are able to tour, and they end up on Rough Trade Records at this point, which um, is interesting. There was a funny quote by a guy who, uh, Terry Tolton, I think his name is, He he's kind of an interesting figure in the band history because he sort of becomes friends with Dean Wareham and... Damon and Naomi are not big fans of him at all, and he sort of very vocally says that he was on, like, Team Dean, right? And it's hard to be in a band with a couple, right? And But he's he seems to be a very outspoken human being, probably not the easiest guy to be around all the time. Uh, but he was sort of... Um, he was sort of saying that like he was working with rough trade and he's like, if we'd focused on this band and Lucinda Williams, instead of suing her and some other people, like we might've actually been able to keep our money, but instead we kind of, they picked all the wrong horses pretty much. Mm-hmm. So, uh, they're recording, they get a following in the United kingdom. Um, and they actually get as high on the UK indie album chart, uh, with this album, uh, on fire as number seven, uh, but they sort of just continue to be fly under the radar in the U.S. And there are some vocal holdouts um, in the U.S. music press, like the Tastemakers. Uh, and a lot of it is uh, a lot of uh, the U.S. pushback uh, was on Wareham. They did not like his voice. They felt it was a barrier for them. So that was a little bit of what was going on. But meanwhile, they're playing John Peel's BBC Radio. John Peel loved this band and really was an outspoken uh, person for them. They cover uh, Jonathan Richmond's Don't Let Our Youth Go to Waste, which is pretty on the nose uh, for a guy to cover because there's a lot of similarities uh, between this band and some of the stuff he did and the Modern Lovers did. And... Yeah, this is their second album, and then they tour, and they're about to go on a tour of Japan in 1991, but as they were recording This Is Our Music, their third album, pretty much everybody agrees in that oral history that things are not going well, Uh, and just Dean Wareham just eventually says, like, I just didn't want to go on the tour, and just told him I don't really want to be a part of this band anymore, and that was it. 
and they have never reunited and they're going to be in that group. It looks like that kind yeah. of it's it's very interesting because in reading it, uh, Dean Wareham is much more kind of like it was time. It's hard to be in a band with a couple, you know, like we just had creative differences, I at least in terms of the stuff. He seems more like it was a good piece. I had stuff. I moved on to these other projects. I think for David and Naomi, it was a little bit more of a like a shock kind of like they thought, oh, we have these moments and these creative differences. But we can always make it work. And yeah. they were sort of like they felt like they were kind of betrayed right as they had more good music to make, um, at least as of 2010. And even when I'm reading interviews in 15 and 16, there's still elements of that. So, um, yeah, they kind of they kind of broke up right at the peak of what their powers would be. Like we said, they never really got commercial in the United States, but they certainly had weren't struggling to tour, right? And were trying to expand out and had already um, had a lot of success in the UK and were looking to expand into Asia where they thought they had a real chance of doing it. But yep, their last performance was at April, uh, April 5th in 1991 at, uh, I always, is it Bowdoin College, the one in Maine? Or yeah. Bowden? It's Bowden, right? I think it's Bowden. Is it Bowden? Yeah. Okay. That was their last one. Yeah. It's, it's and, Bowden. Yes. Yeah. I thought so. Yeah. That's, and I just want to make sure. And um, yeah, uh, in a, a interesting postscript is uh, Galaxy 500's records uh, were on the Rough Trade label. Rough Trade went bankrupt in 1991. And uh, uh, Krakowski, Damien Krakowski, uh, and Naomi Yang purchased the Masters at the auction and oh, wow. reissued them in 1996. And all of the members of the band sort of described the aftermath as like their parents of the band and they, they basically have custody of this stuff and they, they can do business together, right? But there definitely mm -hmm. is still some vibes where it's like they're, you can pretty much tell they're not going to get back together. But um, Dean Wareham becomes a producer. He works with the band Mercury Rev. He forms another band called Luna. About a year afterwards, uh, Krakowski and Yang continue to record. Yang's doing some music videos and some other art stuff. Um, they have a avant-garde record label. And uh, actually, Wareham started to play uh, Galaxy 500 songs in 2010 uh, with his wife at the time. Um, and they were playing it. I thought this would be a real tension point you know with the other members but they didn't seem to be all that bothered by it interestingly mm -hmm. enough so um like they said they were able to keep i guess the business part of it separate than the personal um i kept looking for other aspects that were there but it really was this story where they knew each other they formed a band they got a cult following pretty quickly they toured quite a bit on the indie scene and then in 1991 they just decided to stop and then they stopped and moved on to other artistic pursuits and so it was kind of a little bit of a supernova you know in the indie world they went up only to be there um they were always well regarded in the time in the indie world sonic youth was a very um big supporter of them of uh they but were. they're <laughs> Well, they don't, it's funny because they're like, it was kind of interesting because we don't really sound anything like them and vice versa. And Sonic Youth kind of said, you know, they, we don't, not because of necessarily doing it. We just sort of like the ethos of the band a little bit and the vibe. So, um, so yeah, I, I didn't think that they were a natural, um, fit, but, um, but they did that, but there are, there are some people who have sort of notably mentioned their big galaxy 500 fans, um, 
the band Low, um, which fits who we're going to cover in the, the 90s. Uh, Liz Fair references them on Stratford on Guy on Exile on Guyville, um, Neutral Milk Hotel, um, big fan, Brian Jonestown Massacre. Um, hmm. There's others, but those are ones that kind of come out and say they're being, they were very influenced by them. And there's a ton of other um, indie rock bands and certainly groups in the late 2000s, 2010s, their name consistently has been brought up but they're they're not just a come you know come recently band they've pretty much always been on that critic darling wavelength especially in the uk since probably the mid 90s so um that's a little bit of what's going on there um i think josh has the first take if i remember or is it no it's matt who has the first take i apologize matt what were your thoughts on this one no, I, th- I think I have the first take. Oh, is it yours? Okay. Yeah. Well, you've kind of given you've kind of given some <laughs> yeah. tells there about how you feel about this. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, that only happens when I feel strongly about an album I dislike, and this is. Oh, this could um, be an interesting segment, yeah. then, Josh. <laughs> I can tell you already, it's going to be an interesting segment. But continue. I really, yep. I really found this album very tedious. It uh, felt like the longest forty minutes of my life, and I listened to it multiple times to try and, you know, get beyond my initial feelings from it. It's. Uh, I, I would classify this as dream pop, I think. And I think it's, uh, you know, in the vein of n- not like the Cocteau Twins, but if the as we know, the dream pop genre is not <laughs> working for me so far. Um, this is considered a little bit more proto shoegaze than dream okay. pop. Well, we, then yeah. shoegaze is not going to be my genre also. Um, I found the lead singer's voice a, a real barrier to entry. Also, you mentioned that at one point. Um some somewhere along the way and some u.s critics were vocal about that yeah i it it was too high-pitched for me um i found the songs often i couldn't tell when one song ended and another began they just kind of kept running into each other the um the some of the stuff they they incorporate some like kind of psychedelic 60s sound to some of their songs like snowstorm i thought that was interesting um in a departure from kind of the rest of it um decomposing trees has a sax that comes in kind of abrupt abruptly or you know there i don't think there's a sax on the rest of the album it's just on that song um and seems to kind of take over that that was uh strange for me and then um, but I liked when they, on another day, they switched to the female singer and that kind of changed it a little bit for me. I liked that more. And then isn't it a pity came on, which is its best song, but that's a George Harrison cover. So, and then I went back and listened to the George Harrison cover and that, or the song, and that is just better anyway, um, by itself, by, because it's George Harrison. That song did sound kind of like Oasis to me a little bit when their re- rendition of it. Um, so I thought that was interesting, but just whatever they were doing with the guitars and kind of this sad boy theme that I f- feel like I picked up on, um, or that's kind of how it sounded to me. Uh, it just did not work for me. I did not get into this album. I listened to it multiple times, as I said, and I couldn't I couldn't, it just, it felt like a drone, a droning type of album to me, even though that's not really, droning's not the right word, but the, uh, it, it felt same, it felt like the same song from the first track to the last track, and I could not kind of parse what 
what the appeal was to people about it. Um, we've mentioned the shoegaze thing before, I think somewhere on some album. And I think that's going to be a real, um, uh, uphill climb for me, but, uh, yeah, I did not like this album. So thumbs down. I'm glad there's only three albums of theirs. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Josh, I am higher on this record than you are. Um, and yeah, this is, um, you know, in some ways I was kind of, uh, I, I had a somewhat of a similar, although more positive reaction uh, that uh, of the album that we covered last week, which was the um, Blue Nile, mm-hmm. um, because both of, first of all, both of them are very much night. These are strike me as it's another night album, right? It's a uh, yeah, it is dream to me. It's yeah, it's dream pop. Uh, I saw on your slow core, <laughs> so that, yeah, that, that's great. a term that came up again. <laughs> um, and uh but it's just a it's a it was a real easy listen for me i see what you're saying about the vocals that that you know there is like a piercing kind of whiny nature to it um that i yes it's 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 very understandable if someone says this guy's got a terrible voice i don't want to listen to this i would get that but it doesn't bother me at all um i so i this a lot of these songs they seem like they're very basic like because it's a lot of them just start off with uh the guitar with a with a there's like zero distortion on any of the guitar so it's that was all of, that was by design matt by the yep. way the the basic structure and the the recording and the strip down yeah well and it so seems you're like something yeah it seems like i mean i play i can play some guitar right i know basic chords and maybe a couple of bar chords and that's that's what i can do right so i felt like a lot of these songs and i didn't try it but i feel like a lot of these songs i could sit down and within like a couple of minutes would have the chords down like i would just be like okay i got like and it's just like two or three things right so it seems like a very stripped down basic kind of chord structure that each song starts with right just like with a very basic kind of chord that's you know there's no there's not really any virtuoso thing happening there it's just like strumming a guitar um but it's done i i really do like the um the 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 effect of this of the the like whatever their however they're uh creating the actual tone of the guitar i i like that effect that they're doing um it, it's it, it is like a very echoey kind of dream pop kind of thing and it's it's melodic right and so i like that and then a lot of times yes he throws on top of that now you're going to loop in the like more of the psychedelic guitar that's very yeah it's kind of like very there's a very 60s element of this uh, mm-hmm. uh, that's happening on this record um you know and they're throwing in some interesting things there's times where they pick up the pace a little bit or his voice goes a little bit higher or, yeah they throw in the saxophone or they have you know the um the the female the bass player you know takes a takes a song Obviously, they throw in a cover of "Isn't It a Pity." It's funny, Josh. You said that sounds like Oasis. That's what I was playing that earlier tonight. And Sherry's like, "This sounds like Oasis." So you're onto <laughs> yeah. something. Yeah, you guys are in simpatico on that. They're big in Britain, so I guess that was. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I, I see what you're saying. This it it does kind it blends together, right? There's not a te- there's not a ton of there's some variation. There's not a ton. I I see what you're saying there. But I, but this is another example of one of those things that they're they're hitting the slain, and I just I really like it. Like I find it very, there's there's a soothing nature to this to me. There's a yeah. there's a relaxing nature to it. I do not um, find this soothing, even like yeah. compared to Blue Nile. I find that much more like evocative and calming than this. This just kind of got felt like really annoying to me. 
Like, What's it? Is it more the vo- it's it's either the voice or it's the 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 uh, like the um, psychedelic guitar that I would say kind of yeah I think it's both it's both okay yeah because the because the underlying guitar part is not it's very that's a very easy soothing sound to me and that's yeah. and to me that's kind of like the basis and foundation of a lot of these songs so um, yeah I I just it's I I yeah it's hard for me to say oh this song stands out I read somewhere that that somebody said oh Blue Thunder is the single it's the opening track it's the single and that totally makes sense because it's by far the strongest song and I didn't I didn't feel like any song in particular stood out to me as being like yeah. that's the song that that's all it's one piece right it's kind of you know it, there's a different there's a slightly different variation throughout but the but the overall sentiment and sound and you know vibe and it's like a soundscape as well right it's just like a, a, another, another soundscape type record but i like that i like these these kind of slow melodic you know uh evening albums that are yeah that are somewhat relaxing and just it's very pleasant you know Ooh. so i yeah i enjoy never didn't know anything about these guys never heard any of these songs um i was hearing a lot of different bands in here it's another one of those records that i'm like man there's so much there's so many you know bands even today right this is not just like oh this is like some 90s band or whatever that's coming across you john named some of them but you know this is also stuff that's happening today so mm. it's kind of another what's got the foot in the past with the 60s psychedelia but it's also got this other other thing happening that that um pretends to kind of um you know some of the more indie rock and music that comes out even today so yeah I, i'm thumbs up on it this was a this is a very easy thumbs up for me i liked it from the beginning um I just I don't I don't know if I necessarily felt like I liked it the more that I listened to it. I felt like I liked it always the same amount and it just kind of once it hit me, it's just it's there, it's great. Um and uh unique listen for me. So I'm a thumbs up on it. Yeah, I feel like whenever I have a strong opinion, I'm always last on these things and like I wait <laughs> a long time. Like, yeah, I loved this album like a ton. Like there I agree, Matt. There's something like deeply comforting about this album to me. I can't really yeah explain it. it evoked it evoked a feeling in me of like w- warmness but there was also like a desperation in it it was mm-hmm. it wow. is definitely sad boy music don't get me wrong but it's like sad boy music in a lane that absolutely speaks to me like i don't know how to describe it it just i could put this album on at night and this album just sort of decompressed me from mm. the day i just felt completely connected to it um it will almost certainly be in my top 10 albums for the 80s. That's how strongly I felt about this album. Wow. It just, everything about, I, the voice was not a barrier to me. I actually mm-hmm. felt it worked perfectly in contrast to the music. I actually liked the, fa- if it had been a voice that did the same thing as the music, I think it wouldn't have been good, right? Because it would have just sort of been like vanilla and just blended in. I think the fact that it was jarring created this juxtaposition um, it, it evoked a place for me. I don't even think you had to tell me this band was from New England. I knew they were either from the Pacific Northwest or from New England as soon as I heard them. Because there's a there's a winter feel to this sound. Yeah. That is the best way I could describe it. Um, and because of that, I got a deep sense of place. And, and I'm learning the more we do this podcast, the more there are just certain albums that I... As I process it, I get a sense of time or place or color, you know, just the abstract stuff, right? In the same way that sometimes when I would read poetry, it would be the same thing. I'd get an idea. And and the only way I could describe is I think some people 
get that feeling in the way that they connect people or memories to stuff in a way that I don't do quite as much, right? Like I don't listen to something and go, oh, that reminds me of that time. I think Matt, that probably is a little bit more you, right? Evocative yeah, that's of a, me. Yep, that's you. Yeah, that, I'm not saying that's negative. That's me, I get it in a more abstract idea. I'm like, this gives me a place or a time, right? There isn't necessarily anything associated with it. It just puts me in a mood that I associate with the time and, and I don't know what it was, but like I, there was one night when I played I played this album. I put it on around nine o'clock, and I just like listened on headphones in my bed, and it just was a, a deeply warm, satisfying feeling. The songs aren't really profound lyrically. In fact, sometimes they sound <laughs> heavier than they are. But I, I would disagree with you, Matt. That I love the song "Blue Thunder." But there were songs I liked every bit as much. I thought the cover of Is It a Pity was fantastic. I really did. And I love the George Harrison song too. But I thought the take they did was great. It was it was a great cover in the sense that it, it made the song different. And it took the, the emotions of Isn't It Pity but ran it through a different framework. I love the song Strange. Um, I, I don't, like the recurring... Uh, why is everybody, you know, the, the touch point there. And it's funny because the song's basically about him buying stuff at a convenience store. But it just seems more profound than that in some ways. It's like you're doing... And that's kind of what this album is, right? It's simple, but it's also in its own way complex. And that's what that song is. It's like I'm observing people and wondering about their deepest nature while buying Twinkies, you know, in the, 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 the um, thing. Uh, the line, right? Um, yeah. I love the song Snowstorm. Um, it's a, it's nostalgic and just like you guys said, it's got like a 60s and 70s. Um, uh, psychedelic isn't necessarily the word, like layered feel, right? And it just uh, flangy guitar a little bit that's there. Simple riffs, but yeah, I just, um, I knew nothing about this band coming in. I didn't even really know them by reputation, if I'm being very honest with you. Um, but boy, um, this one really hit for me. Um, I guess maybe, Josh, what shoegaze is a barrier for you is a virtue for me, in the sense that it... Um, yeah, I think that's what it, There's like, like, it's like a, it's like a enveloped blanket for me. It's yeah. just, mm -hmm. it really is... Um, there's nothing about it that's... Um, it's similar, and, and you know, there's bands that we know, like Beach House, right, comes to mind and stuff yes. like that. These, but yeah, yep. that, that was when I thought of this. I'm like, I like yeah, this is... more than I like Beach House, but I'm like the same type of thing when, when I'm feeling Beach House, right? Like when I'm, there's not a lot going on, and I just got some time to think, but I don't want to think too hard, <laughs> like, but I want to kind of process some stuff and get into like a headspace. Beach house and real estate, you know, bands of the modern day, right, yeah. are like this, and these are sort of protos of that. And shoegaze in general, I, I like the version of it that's this sort of more chilled version of it. I like the version that throws in the distorted guitars to balance out, and in some ways, his voice, right, Dean's uh, voice, is like what the abrasive guitars are in some of the other versions of this type of music. Does that make sense? Like that, there's that harsh guitar that juxtaposed with the dreamy mm -hmm. nature. That's well, a little like bit the more Jesus like the Jesus and Mary Chain was Jesus way and more, Mary Chain yeah, comes to mind. Yes, song, even yeah. Cocteau Twins. You know what I mean? Do some things that sometimes 
have a little bit more edge to them, but they're all in the same lane. And uh, like, I get it, Josh, don't get me wrong. Cause yeah. there's certain genres of sad boy music that I find a little bit eye rolly and stuff. And that we'll get into, but this one, I just process outside of my normal context. I don't process this in lyrics. I don't process this in, I process it in a, in a, feels is maybe the wrong word. I process it as like a feeling more than anything else. And it's a feeling that I enjoy. I, I, I kind of would almost describe this album as what I imagine it would be like to take heroin. <laughs> like it's kind of, this is a drug album. It, it really is. And it's, I was still able to enjoy it despite being the absolute opposite of a drug person. But like, I'm like, Oh, I can totally understand how Josh, certain you should, drugs you should would go well take some heroin and then listen to this. Yeah. And then maybe you feel it. That. <laughs> but doesn't it feel like a heroin album? It abs- it, but it's I funny because they were, yes, they were not drug users, by the way, this yeah. band. So it was not, it was not informed by that, but it definitely seems to me like maybe it would be acid, big. even weed acid. Yep. Yeah. It just, yeah, Wait. I don't have a lot of familiarity, but like whatever those feelings do, like I got some of it naturally from what mm. this was. So yeah, this one gets a. Uh, this is my album. Week. Oh, album of the week. Yeah. What What were you um disagreeing with me on there, John? What What happened? Your best song was blue. Yeah. Oh, you, you, you cut out. Something I, weird happened. I think you're back to normal though. Um, but okay, yeah, the, it's uh, you said Blue Thunder was the clear best song. I don't. No, no, no. I, I didn't love say the that. song. I didn't yeah. say that. That's that's what I read, and my okay. reaction to that was I don't. I I like them all kind of the same. Nothing stood out to me as being this song's better than that one. That's somebody I read like somebody that's like, oh, it makes sense that that's a single because that's the clear best song, and I I yeah. I didn't agree with that. I thought they were. I all think just a lot of people feel the need to have to rank stuff, uh, so I don't read like any yeah. commentary on stuff because I do think if you look at any comments and stuff, people just somehow feel compelled to have a strong editorial opinion on stuff. And like, I'm with you, Matt, like I, I took this in as an entire piece and soundscape's mm-hmm. a great term you used before too. And that is sort of like, some people would be like, I don't like this. It all sounds the same and it, it doesn't differentiate. And to me, it's like, yes, <laughs> that's what I liked about it. It kind of was. But it just goes back so, to, yeah. it just goes back to what I've, I've, we've talked about before. If you, if you can do the same thing, sound samey, be yeah. all one big piece. And if you do the thing that's really that you really enjoy that you really like that's i like that warp wrapping yourself in the blanket the soundscape like the being enveloped in this the overall experience well, I can't get that's great in that's in four minutes you know like i need yeah. more time so and you know if it's something i don't like i get it but like if i like it uh, and it's not all samey by the way they do variations of stuff on this so i i, I want to say you could listen to individual songs like i did and still enjoy it but oh, as sure. a piece as a piece together it really it, it's the even best version of it as and, and a, you're absolutely well, yeah. right about like beach house and real estate and band like dive you know these other bands that kind of yes. have similar similar vibes and i did and i like all that stuff um i did see beach house live once and mm-hmm. it's, it, it's 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 interesting because it's not the best live show to see because <laughs> right. they just nothing's happened they just stand yeah. there you know and it's like it's not like but you know, I guess well, I don't really want to be like standing amongst people when I'm listening to be. I like kind of right. want to be in my room or in a space where I'm allowed. You know what I mean? I, I it would be because I'd want to get into the vibe, right? Yeah. And it would be kind of hard to 
be have my brain turned off for yeah, like 35 it kinda, minutes it, it kind of yeah. falls in that line of like it's music that i that i do really enjoy but i don't know if i if they were touring i'm like nah i'm good i don't like that's not a band you need to see live as opposed to a band that you might not want to listen to like on your own but then you're like you got to see this band live because it's just the performance is like this on, on i want beach thing, house so. to come to my house and just play their album <laughs> this is the live experience i want like uh, this is how i feel about this Sounds band like too MTV it's like contest can yeah. you plug in galaxy <laughs> come play 500 apartment and as um as if I had a stressful day, can you come in and play this album in entirety for me so that I feel fucking better afterwards? So I don't. I'm not sure. I have albums that I feel that way about that same type of like warm enveloping feeling. I don't think I mm. get the energy from album. I'm trying to think of other albums in the '80s. Well, like, it sounds like by the very nature of what we're talking about, <laughs> yeah. you don't like that anyway. Like you don't <laughs> yeah, want it. You don't so. want a soundscape. You don't want it just an overall oral kind yeah. of like huge piece that that kind of just well it's just interesting because you. you you clearly connect in some things you know what i mean like yeah excitement uh, depression it, it, you know what i mean there's there's feelings you've been able to process through oh, in music you've listened to but maybe warmth <laughs> Josh, Josh needs more. Josh needs more energy. Josh yeah, needs more I, I a little giddy so. up and go. I think overall. I think if the music's too slow, I I just fall asleep, and that's not what I'm looking oh. for. Oh, if I only listened to upbeat music, I'd go insane because after a while, it'd drive me insane. It's I don't like, think. I, I no, I don't think Josh. Like, yeah. I don't think you only want uh, get it, but like that's if this if there's too much slowness, right? That that's really going to be a yes, barrier. Slow for you. core is not the genre that I that I need in my life. <laughs> like josh if if if, I, if somebody put a playlist together or whatever that was more upbeat stuff and then threw like a song from here on here would that be okay or would you be like skipping through that like i can't i can't do that at all maybe i don't know it's like yeah. i can't even put pick out a song on here that i would want on a there's playlist. gonna be so many bands josh hates <laughs> in the 90s and 2000s can you see it matt oh my gosh there's yeah. a whole un un uh unopened see because I know, like, just as much as I know Matt's going to love... Like, I knew going into this that Matt was going to like this album a lot and Josh was going to hate this album. I think you guys are probably starting to learn that I am a little bit more in this lean than maybe you guys yeah. thought before. Mm -hmm. But um, Are Josh yeah. and I the married couple, by the way? Yes. Josh and you are definitely the married <laughs> Josh couple. Josh is the bass player and I'm the drummer. Josh is the bass player and you're the drummer, yes. Yeah. Well, sure. as soon as you tipped your hand as soon as you said this, the two guys have strong personalities. I'm like, well, that's not Josh. <laughs> so... She was sort of like the healer, you know what I mean? Like the listener, like kind of take it together, like kind of tried to thread both parts, get it together. Uh, the the drummer was definitely more in the lane of strong personality, but he had a lot of like righteous indignation when he felt like his moral compass or like the 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 type of communication they were having, you know what I mean? Like it, it just... When I was listening to him, I'm like, this would be like what Matt and I in a band would be like. We would be having the same fights that these guys are having. Like, they both like each other and they were friends, but it's like after a while, just... And, you know, obviously, it would like be if, like, you and Josh formed a faction and I was the other faction, right? <laughs> yeah. Which probably is the case sometimes on this podcast, <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So, um, the strong ideas and stuff, but yeah, it was just, as I was listening, I was laughing. I was like, this band's kind of like us if we were a band. So, <laughs> yeah. Hmm. So I'll, I'll link you guys the, uh, the interview from, even if you didn't like this album, Josh, it's an interesting, um, oral history to read because yeah. it does kind of give yeah. you, it kind of gives you everything you need in some ways about what you need to know and their, their process. So. Sounds yep. good. 
Well, I'm glad you found a good discovery this week for for a new album. Yeah, I was writing down my list of like albums I really like that I knew nothing about. And the 80s has definitely been the lodestar for that compared to our other decades. Absolutely. I, I could almost make a top 10 list of bands i really like that i knew nothing about that you know, now maybe i we would should definitely up... evangelize for and this might be the 10th of 10 because i had a list of 10 and this mm. was it yeah i'm thinking and... i'm thinking we're gonna have to get together and figure out how we're gonna do the final episode because i because <laughs> i i don't know like i feel like a top 10 is not going to be enough like and i don't want to split well, i thought I that way about the 70s because there's a ton of stuff i loved in the but 70s but also like too. splitting up the the cold listens like i'm like i'm not differentiating them as much anymore mm. so i don't know we have to we have well to what makes it out, easy but... is like if you have an organized chart where you could write oh, down how you feel right. about stuff that. the entire I should time, have organi- yeah, it would almost be like it would be helpful if like someone built that for you and you could then use it to, in your own way, be able to categorize this. Why mm-hmm. not? Somebody should get on that. Yeah, somebody should. So almost yeah. like your own best ever albums. <laughs> Talk. Yeah, <laughs> I, I love it. I love it when Josh is just like, wait, wait, stop. This is what number in the 1980s? Like, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's you can always tell when Josh isn't going to like an album because he, he tells it. But I, I almost can always tell when Josh isn't going to like an album. Yeah, I do. Josh isn't going to like it. Matt's I mean, a any... little bit more unpredictable. Like, there's some that I'm like, oh, I did not take that. But well, I dream, rarely get Josh's take The dream pop slow core kind of combo there. I was like, yeah, Josh isn't going to like this. Yeah. yeah. What do you think I was going to feel about this album, Matt? I thought you would like it. I didn't know you were going to like yeah. it as much as you did, but it makes yeah. it tracks now that I think yeah, about it. Yeah, I so, thought yeah. you would mm-hmm. like it too. Okay. Like, like for you to come and say that's gonna make it's easily gonna make my top ten. That was. I don't know easily, but it's got a real good chance to make my top ten. It really does. Yep. So, but we still have three more episodes. So who the hell knows? There could be something. Who the hell knows? So, uh, well, that's a that's a great way to to. uh, We have a uh, our last cold listen hot take, right? No, we got one. We have a oh, we got one more regular. Okay. Then then regular. So well, what the hell are we covering next week, Matt? So next week we're covering. Uh, Josh spoke of this earlier. Nine Inch Nails, yeah, um, with their album "Pretty Hate Machine." Pretty Hate so Machine. Yeah. I'm going to be covering that one, okay. uh, and then we're going to be covering a band called Nirvana, um, <laughs> with, <laughs> with their album Nirvana's uh, debut album "Bleach." I believe that's their debut album. Is that um, the is that the in bloom uh, yeah, thing? Nirvana. Yeah, the, yeah, yeah. The Ed Sullivan. Yeah. Well, there's yeah. no writing about this band for me to draw. Josh, on. yeah, Josh is gonna have his work cut out for him there. He's covering <laughs> that, and then John is covering Operation Ivy. Oh their boy, album Energy. So, boy, speaking um, of takes, I could guess before they even happen. <laughs> That's what, yeah, yeah. So yeah. I will, I will be open-minded. I'm gonna be <laughs> open-minded. So. So, okay. Well, that, that, that's an interesting episode right there. What's our uh, buzz clips for next week? Oh, I forgot about the buzz clips. Oh, we've got Crash by The Primitives. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. And a uh, I do know that song. I don't know Motion of Love by Gene Loves Jezebel. So that'll be the <laughs> I don't know one. that song either. I don't know yeah. Motion of Love by Gene. I def- by, by name. So. You will know Crash by the Primitives okay. when you hear it. I'm if you've seen Dumb and Dumber, you've heard Crash by the Primitives. <laughs> or or any number of other play that song's been around in lots of different things. Yeah. So It is in my buzzbin. I'm I'm throwing it down right now. <laughs> oh, <geez. laughs> yeah, so. Early take. So Yeah, so well, uh yeah, it's uh and then we'll try to figure out a way to integrate the pitchfork songs in because there's some songs that were on that list and I'm like, I definitely want to talk about that song in the context of with you guys, but it definitely is not covered. So um we'll talk about how to do that. But for now, let's go ahead and tie a bow on this episode for Josh and Matt. This is John. Thanks so much for listening.
Combing the stacks can be found on 13 different platforms. Viewer feedback can be sent to combingthestacks at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at CombingThe and on YouTube by searching for Combing the Stacks and throwing us a follow.